Welcome to the Great Bays Tennis Podcast, episode 90, coming to you from the FM Tennis Performance Center in Boynton Beach, Florida. I'm Steve Smith, along with Will Resnick. Will is from the Great White North. He's from Toronto, has a background in the game of tennis. He's now a tennis teaching professional. Um, one of our longtime associates, Miran Mann, who I think I've known since he was 10 or 11 years old. I think now he's 40, 41, guessing. Uh, he's sent Will here. Will's been here for three weeks, and he is going to ask questions, and I'm going to try to answer the questions. Will, welcome. Thanks very much for having me here. You're more than welcome. The Great White North, the Canadian. <laughs> what do you got? What do you got? So firstly, why did you become a tennis coach? Because you said you were a hockey player before, and you were. it sounds like you were a decent hockey player. Why not become a hockey coach instead? Well, well, well. Um, yeah, decent is probably a very good word. I was good. I've been good at three things in my life. Uh, very quickly, people have heard this before. It's good at Lincoln Logs. It's good at street hockey and feeding tennis balls. Um, with um, when I was uh, a young guy, it was appealing to me to learn how to play tennis. It was appealing to get out of the snowbanks of upstate New York. I discovered through a story of circumstance that I could study tennis and, and travel the world. Um, a lot of people thought I was crazy because I, I really loved tennis. When um, I grew up in a hockey family, I was born you know, in a town very close to the Canadian border. Um, very quickly, um, when I was in college, better yet, I'll even backtrack. When I was a freshman in high school, I had a bad birthday. Instead of being able to play Bantam hockey, I had to play um High school hockey. I was born at the born in the end of November. If I was born the first of January, and I weighed maybe 120 pounds, uh, but it was very low level. How I, old were you at that point? Freshman high school. So what are you? Uh, 14, 15. Uh -huh. So my parents had moved 150 miles south um, to a place called Casanova. So I went from Potsdam, New York, to Casanova, New York, and um, my oldest brother, one of my older brothers, I have three. He wanted to have an alumni hockey game. He had some choice words with a young coach, and the young coach had embellished his background. And you know, my family knew you know his background, and my my brother really it was it was very good for me because I went from uh, never ever sitting on the bench. Um, it was so you know, it's just small potatoes, but I can remember being the leading scorer in a house league when I was a defenseman. And back in those days, you would um, play house hockey on Saturday and travel hockey on Sunday. So, um, you know, the coach who was very upset with my brother and then I was the victim and it was very good for me at the time because I mean, I never, uh, understood my father. My father always, he always wanted to play three lines. You know, he would platoon like you do in hockey and no one would ever sit the bench. Uh, my father was even instrumental where a group of men came up with this, uh, in house league hockey, the bell would ring every two minutes. You could have a breakaway to be about to score and the bell would ring. And it was just equal opportunity, you know, 15 kids on a team, five kids who offer two minutes, five kids for two minutes. And um, so then I, I went to a prep school and um, I probably would be better off to make the second team, but I made the first team and it was mostly postgraduates, uh, kids taking an extra year. And um, I, I went to Oswego State. So I made the varsity, but all the name tags for the Canadian recruits 
were already purchased. And the only reason they had a name tag for me back in the 70s, it was pretty big to put names on jerseys, is one of my other brothers had played there. So, and there's always a Smith. So, um, I had really gotten a bad shake as a, as a freshman. And, you know, it's not sometimes, uh, and I think that's one thing that's great about tennis, it's certainly not as political as team sports. So my oldest brother, who's had a long career in the NHL as a scout, coach, head coach, general manager, he was in Russia studying hockey. He has a PhD in Russian studies, and that's how he really got a, a start in the NHL is what he knew about Russian hockey. And so he was studying hockey systems. I said, oh, okay, then, you know, that's part, another part of the story is I'll study tennis systems. But the assistant hockey coach, I had told uh, at the college I went to, told my brother that I, he thought I was too small. Um, so I, assist, who told your brother that the, they thought you were too small? The assistant hockey coach at the school I went to. So I just put two and two together. Is this said, high school or college? It was college. Yeah. It was college. And, and um, with, uh, you know, so it was go. It was great to go to college and and try out for the team, and you know, and that's everybody in that small area to prove people. Like you know, I really um, got a bad shake when I was a freshman in high school. I ended up going to prep school. My father probably rolled over his grave is that I went to prep school for hockey, but I did go to a prep school that you know had its own hockey rink, and it's it's a, it's a to this day it's uh, Kimball Union Academy. It's it's ranked in one of the top 10 I don't want to sound schools. really ignorant, but prep school is boarding school. Right, right. And so you went to boarding school when you were 14? No, I, I only went my last two years. But anyway, um, I just felt, you know, one, I thought it'd be, it was very intriguing. I didn't know what I was going to study. And to study sport back in my day, if you wanted to be a coach, you would become a PE major, phys ed. Mm-hmm. You would teach 20 sports, jack of all trades. That's not, in college? Yeah, that's what people would do. Jack of all trade, master of none. Not not to belittle being a physical educator, but you know, you'd have so much passion, you would do that so you could coach a team in the afternoon. And um, but no, I just I'm a product of the tennis boom where the tennis tiebreaker came on the scene. And what, what's the tennis tie? You tie, mean the, the tiebreaker? That's because originally yeah. people just played. Any set could go theoretically. Yeah, a, a set would not end at six all. I mean, a set would go 22-20, so tennis could not be put on TV. So so then at what point during the 20th century did they decide this may not make sense? Uh, James Van Allen in 1970, uh, that he invented the tiebreaker, and that's when they started using it. And it's changed. It was, um, it was lingering death. Um, let me get it right. It was sudden death. It was sudden death at one point. Now it's Bud Collins, a late commentator. Lingering death means win by two. But at one point, the tiebreaker was nine points, and it would be four all. And you would serve two, I would serve two, you would serve two, then I could serve three. So it wasn't really fair. So a lot of times, the you person could serve get, three to finish. Yeah. So so it would be it would be five four. So anyway, to get back to your original question is also when I was a kid. Women weren't playing hockey. It was unfair for women in sports back then. There wasn't that many opportunities. Um, I look back at it and go, I would have loved to have been a hockey coach. But again, it was just, um, you know, tennis was happening all over. And um, again, story of circumstance, we're hitchhiking everywhere. And Dave Eddy, 10 years older than what I am. What do you mean you were hitchhiking? Is that after college? You just went. When I first started, when you, back in the day, boys, not girls, but you would hitchhike. Just mm-hmm. to stick your thumb out and you get a ride. And, 
And, and like, not, what age were you hitchhiking? Well, you start to hitchhike, you know, back in the day, 15, 16 years old. And um, again, uh, come back to Dave Eddy. I can remember my mother saying is that you were told when you're hitchhiking to memorize the license plate. And if you were in the car with a, a strange, a strange duck, you'd rattle off the tie, rattle off the, the license plate. And my mother said, listen up. My mother would say, then they have to kill you. <laughs> so, but no, Dave Eddy was a tennis pro and, uh, that central New York area by Casanova. So then I, I had no exposure to tennis. And so, but I, I mean, I had a little bit because, um, before I went off to a fancy prep school, my parents got me a job as a dishwasher and I was in a cabin in the Adirondacks. And when did you get the job as the dishwasher? So I, was, I was, you know, back in the day, you'd work all sorts of part-time jobs. Everybody got a job when they're 16. So the summer I'm 16, I'm uh, working as a dishwasher, staying in a cabin not too far from Lake Placid up in the mountains. And there was a couple of tennis courts. So I started banging the ball around. And then I went to prep school and outside my dorm windows, of course, so I started banging the ball around. And then my senior year, the hockey team was allowed to do off, off uh, ice training, but they reinstated a rule where you had to play a sport. So I used to run cross country to get in shape. So I tell the coach, uh, I tell the athletic director, and he's telling me I should run the two mile. And I, I, set, set, I signed up for tennis. I then, uh, when I went to Oswego State, I, um, and, and that really wasn't my first choice. I mean, you know, basically you're judged on LBS, how much do you weigh in hockey? And I wasn't very big. And then also your SAT scores. So um, I went out for the tennis team at Oswego. I, I mean, I'd been knocking balls around. Basically, you just knew how to keep score. But this is when you were 16 or 17 no, and you just started at 16? I mean, when I was a freshman in college. So at 16, I go off to a boys camp. I knock some balls around. I go to prep school. I knock some balls around. My senior year in prep school. I sign up for tennis, mm -hmm. but there was only like 300 plus kids in the whole school. Mm -hmm. So next thing you know, as I'm playing on the tennis team, then I go home and I beat the high school Tri-Valley League champion. I go, tennis must be my sport. I'm going straight to the top. Uh -huh. Then I go to college and the, the coach kept me on the tennis team because he thought I was athletic. And, you know, if you play ice hockey, you develop some athleticism. And then when the ice was put in, I went up to the coach and said, I got to quit. And he said, what do you mean you got to quit? I guess, well, I'm, I'm here to play hockey. And he said he wouldn't have kept me on the team if he knew I was going to quit. He just kept me on the team because he thought I could learn how to play. But so then I, at the age of 19, just shy of being 20, that, that's first year in college hockey, I had an operation on my ankle. And I was coming back. Uh, the Dr. Pike, he gave me about five minutes of his time. And he said, how are you going to rehab your ankle? And I said, I like to do a lot of distance running. He said, well, what else do you like to do? I said, I knock a few tennis balls around. So I started knocking tennis balls around to um, uh, get back in shape for ice hockey. But that's when my, my older brother was in this uh, hockey, I don't know, retreat, workshop, study. He was in Russia. And the assistant coach of the college team said, Herbie, the, the head coach, Herbie Hammond, he thinks your brother's too small. And I heard that and I said, you know, because I already knew that when I went out for the team, it was unfair because the jerseys, the name tags for the jerseys were already ordered. So um, the, um, yeah, so I'm a, a transfer druggie. I mean, hockey was my drug. And I just snap of the fingers, I made tennis my drug. But I, but I entered tennis where it's like, okay, this can be on my terms. It's, it's not a matter of somebody telling me that, you know, well, you're too small. Because I know 
it wasn't the highest level, but uh, I had the skill level to make the team as a freshman. I had the skill level to play. You know, the prep hockey I played, um, it was just, you know, loaded with kids who went on to play Division One hockey. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, how I got into tennis, uh, like a lot of people, story of circumstance, but mine is different, you mm-hmm. know, where I, it's not like I knew I'd hit balls when I was nine years old. I, yeah. I really formally got into tennis at 19 when I got on an airplane, I flew to Florida withdrew from school and so you, you just just you just realized tennis is my passion what were you studying in college um there was a college a bar called bucklands i was studying bucklands now i college hockey players that first year i think it's like going down skid row but um i had no idea what i wanted to study liberal arts <laughs> liberal arts that means no skills <laughs> but um no so um yeah, with hockey, um, I love it. I love it to this day. Hockey's in my blood. Um, but, you know, I took the same, you know, passion I had for ice hockey and just put that into tennis. And But I think also that's where I have a BS detector. People in, in tennis, for the most part, you know, almost 50 years later, I've been in this game, and, and people don't really have a BS detector. And I, in ice hockey, they do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um with, um, but there was no turning back. I mean, I later went back to school and, and, um, you know, I don't think that was of any, any great significance, but, you know, people ask me, you know, about your education and I say school of hard knocks. Um, so I became the perennial tennis bum of Boca Raton. And, and I, I think tennis coaches should do that where I took the role of a starving artist and I worked nights so I could play tennis all day. And in being an ice hockey player, if I had instantly started taking money for teaching tennis, you know, hockey people would just call you out on that. Like you just started in tennis. What are you doing charging people? You're such a phony. And uh, so, um, but, you know, I go back and so I did learn how to play. I mean, it went the, the, the route where I'm living in a van, going to tournaments. I just did that for one year. And then the next year I traveled all over the country in a van going from one so, so, tennis camp to the next. So you got to Florida at 19 and you're saying then for one year you were playing tournaments? No, no, no. By the time I got to Florida, then I found out like, whoa, I had no exposure mm-hmm. for somebody who made a college tennis team, for somebody who beat a high school champion or in their first semester moved up the lineup and played on the varsity at this little prep school. Then I got to Florida and 10 year olds went hit with me. I mean, I uh-huh. had to start from the bottom and, and, uh, no, I, I mean, it's Arthur Ashe says it quite well. I mean, or the late Arthur Ashe past tense. I mean, three years to be a fair player, five years to be a good player, 10 years to be a great player. So, but I think that for one point in my life, I mean, I was hitting as many balls as anybody on the planet, but I was taking tennis lessons too. So and I was reading and, and I know that I spent endless hours practicing you know, myth after myth, myth after myth. What, what do you mean myth after myth? Like if someone says like roll your wrist to get topspin, you asked yourself, is this true? And then you tested out the theory through experience. Um, yeah, no, for example, um, as a hockey player, you hang on to the, the hockey stick, all hockey players, your bottom hand is an Eastern forehand grip. Your top hand is very close to a continental, even to an Eastern backhand. You know, I would say continental, but um, so hockey players instantly can hit a two-handed backhand. They're, they're pretty, you know, get a, they have a leg up because they have the right grip. But back in the day, it was one grip. It was it was the same thing that exists today. 
I mean, I think that you mean in hockey it was one grip or tennis it was one grip. Tennis, tennis, yeah, yeah. tennis, tennis. So that um, you know, the forehands evolved, but to the point where now it's going backwards. Where you know, it used to be because the tournaments were on grass, the best players, three of the four Grand Slams. Yeah, so um, toss high, arch your back, stay down. Yeah, come over the ball, come under the ball, and then really, you know, the empathy. I mean, I just know around the world. Every day, and I think of children, every day, kids who have the, the dream of being good tennis players are given bad information. Mm-hmm. Because the profession is unregulated. I go very strong. It's even fraudulent criminal. <laughs> and, and then overnight, you can be a tennis teacher. So, uh, But no, it was very good because I, I went through that process, you know, taking, I took lessons. And, and then, you know, you read and you listen. And then, you know, my oldest brother said, you know, his advice was try to surround yourself um, by people who know more than you. And so by the time I was 26, I guess, so I was a re- respectable player. And also, um, I went through what it takes to learn and it's, a, it's, it's, it's not easy. But by the time I was 26, I had been trained to teach tennis by Vic uh, Braden, Welby Van Horn and Dennis Vandermeer. So that was a pretty good start. But I, I did that. I, you know, it wasn't really that difficult with Braden and Vandermeer. Um, Van Horn wasn't as well known by, he certainly is to this day by people my age, by tennis insiders. But um, that was a long answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Well, that's a podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at 19, you realized the level of your, let's say, ignorance of the sport, and you realized, hey, I need to go fill in these gaps, develop as a player, develop as a coach so I can go master my craft and then give back. And then I've noticed like in my three weeks here that part of your system of teaching a coach how to be a better coach is to get them to be improve as a player. And so did you develop that system from your experience of having to stay at 19, say, hey, I want to be a better player, and and then saying, oh, I want to go out with these 10-year-olds, but, oh, the 10-year-olds don't want to hit with me, and kind of, you know, the internal score of that, and that's kind of how you get, that's part of the process here. You have to l- learn, as because I've had to learn as a player, as a coach, I've had to learn how to become a better player, and then that gives me the empathy to understand how to coach players better, because then I understand what they're going through, because I've forgotten what it's like to actually learn how to play tennis? Well, a couple of things. Um, when I was 19, I was 19. I, mean, I didn't know right from left or left from right. And I, I just was told that if you're going to teach and coach the game, you got to learn how to play. And again, mm-hmm. that, that was appealing to me. I know now that if you play the game well, it's a bonus. Vic Braden, if you expect your students to play, you should expect yourself to be able to play. You don't have to be a world-class player, but... The other thing, too, is uh, your system. Uh, that's flattering, but it's not really, quote-unquote, my that's system. True. It's uh, a system of systems, and it's a, it's a body of work. And, um, you know, we talk about Braden all the time, which is science. And this is covered in other podcasts, Van Horn Balance, Vandermeer Group Dynamics, Corrective Measures, so many things, um, you know, just presentation skills. And there's others, you know, within our eight pillars. But, of course, Tennis Intelligence Applied, which we need to redo and improve, you know, tennis intelligence apply 2.0. 
we mentioned over a hundred coaches. I think you, you can learn from anybody and everybody. But um, so I did know when I was uh, entering the game that I wasn't going to make my living as a player. You know, I did know that I was in search of hockey systems. I should say, like my older brother, I was in search of tennis systems. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some people think of system is a bad word, but to us, uh, the grip sticker, that's a system. Mm-hmm. How we film on the first day, how we put the kid through two skills tests. Those are all systems. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all part of the plan. Um, so it's it's literally hundreds of systems. Mm-hmm. And, you know, where did that all come from? We do have a few of our own ideas, but most of it is homework. It's, it's research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one theme that stands out to me is coming from a hockey culture where it's all about honesty and exposing fraudulent behavior. It seems that that's really helped you as a tennis coach, because then you just say, Hey, that's BS. That coach doesn't know what they're talking about. If you were to go inside the behind the scenes of the hockey culture of players coaches and parents versus the tennis culture of players, coaches, and parents. Where do you think the difference, the main differences are and the, the, what tennis culture is lacking that hockey culture has that we need to change to close the gaps, to make tennis players tougher and more driven? Well, actually, you know, you're you're, you're from Toronto and I was a young kid. I was very fortunate. Um, in that sense, more fortunate than my older brothers where summer after summer, I went to hockey school in Toronto and I was taught to skate by figure skaters. In hockey, if you can't skate, you can't play. And it's hockey's really improved. Mm-hmm. When, when I was a kid, the, the best hockey players in the world, you know, they couldn't all fly. They all today can just fly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think tennis has improved. Not like it should. Not in comparison to... Uh, Ice hockey. You mean it is a sport? So, say you in know, the 1970s, the caliber of the players compared to like say if you if you were to if you were to compare ice skating to ball striking, um, you know if you, if you can't skate, it's like I don't know anything about swimming. Mm-hmm. Although when I grew up, I grew grew up on a lake, and you know we had to take certain classes up to life savings. You know, our, our mother was you know, emphatic about that. Or I went to a prep school; you had to swim a mile to graduate, mm-hmm. but. Um, you know, when you sign up for a swimming lesson, yes, it is a life-saving skill, but it's expected that you're going to learn how to swim. Mm-hmm. In tennis, it seems like that doesn't exist. I, you're signing up for tennis lessons, you're going to learn tennis. Be, I think it's too much of an activity and not enough of a sport. But um, in tennis, it's it's really frightening is that you're compared to the person on the other side of the net. And I've said this enough to put people sleep. When crummy plays crummier, who wins? Crummy wins, but crummy doesn't know they're crummy. Um, but if you, like say in ice hockey, if you can't skate, you can't skate, you can't play. But in tennis, you can hit the ball every which way and you can be lousy, lousy, lousy when it comes to ball striking, but you're playing somebody else who's lousy. And it's not to make anybody feel bad, but, um, you know, you have to make a really critical study of, you know, why are things the way they are? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most hockey coaches, they coach as a volunteer. My father is a volunteer coach for decades it cost him money to coach hockey. Um, in tennis, I think too much, it's a money grab and young people right away. Oh, so your dad, because you, you said that before, your dad was the coach. 
was a volunteer coach. And he did he coach you and your brother that was the general manager of the Chicago Blackhawks? Is that kind of tracing the lineage of where the the Smith family obsession started with coaching? I think it's because of the, you know the tundra. You know we're pretty close to the Great White North. All sorts uh-huh. of all sorts of cold weather and snow, and you play an outdoor sport. But um, John Wayne, everyone's a coach. The late John Wayne, the actor, because everyone likes to give advice. Why is advice uh, free? Because most of the time it's not worth anything. <laughs> I mean, with um, no, my father was uh, instrumental. Where you know you couldn't coach your own kid. You know, a lot of hockey programs are run that way. But um, no, I mean, it, it was a, the attitude of the household. It was a lifestyle. But um, no, my father, I think, was, was great. He always coached the little kids, you know, the, the age group where you got to tie the skates. He knew a lot about hockey. He was a student of the game. I mean, he would go, civil engineer, but he had, a fan, he had this antenna on the back of his car where he'd drive to the highest point in the county to listen to a college hockey game. I mean, I was fortunate to see so much college hockey. Uh, we had a, uh, when we moved 150 miles from the Canadian border south, we had an antenna. And my mother used to joke, it seemed like the whole house was turning. But we could just turn this antenna towards Kingston, Ontario, and we would get a hockey night in Canada. We were the, it was like, you know, God does love us because it was the only house in the whole little community where we got hockey night in Canada. But um, now I, to this day, I mean, again, hockey is a drug. I mean, it's, I mean, it's a fantastic sport. But authentic um, with, in ice hockey, you got to use your feet, you got to use your hands. And if you put your head down, you're going to get, you know, flattened. Uh Um, You know, it's it's a collision sport. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do think that anytime you have to put a helmet on, something bad could happen. And, uh, you know, in in that sense, uh, it's a little different animal than tennis. So your dad's a civil engineer. And your dad was a coach. And then obviously engineering, if you mess up the, the, how you create the building and the, and the ceiling falls, it's game over. You can't mess up in engineering. Do you think that your, that your dad's engineering background has had a significant influence on the fact that you're so focused on players' technique? Well, I have two sisters that were scholars, um, but I think jockocracy, I have three brothers, I would say, that are not, that were not, uh, you know, you just go out, I think two out of three could have been, uh, just anyway, with, um, no, I don't think so. I think that uh, my father used to tell me on a regular basis that I'd be studying the hockey news and I had all this useless information in my head, memorizing you know, goals, assists, points, penalty minutes. And, uh, you know, it wasn't like, okay, you know, go read this book or that book. Um, but no, when it comes down to, um, I just think ice hockey and, you know, certainly to, you know, maybe to a certain extent, you know, you're getting Ariel and who was on a biomechanist, you know, you're not going to build a bridge out of bamboo. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, but I do think that if it's, it's, uh, you learn from everybody and it's all accumulative, all your experiences add up. Yeah, and I do think that um, you know, starting with the nuns in Catholic school, um, you know, I, I I grew up in a different time. Uh-huh. I, I grew up in a time where the the coach was the coach, mm-hmm. you know, and and the parents really didn't interfere as much. 
So then how is that relationship with parents and coach coaches changed and what is it what was it like then and what is the relationship between parents and coaches now like now and how is that relationship interfering with the players development? Well, we just did a class with two goal-oriented tennis players. You know, they're um, teenage girls. They're playing ITFs. They're here in the area for that. And at the end, I asked one girl, what's it mean to brown bag it? And that means pack your own lunch. Mm -hmm. She had no idea what it meant. Um, I had no idea either. I asked the other girl, I said, what's it mean? What's clothesline mean? Now, there is a term in football where the the guy will straight arm you and hit you in the Adam's apple. But um, clothesline means you're going to put the clothes out. Mm -hmm. And I didn't grow up a silver spoon kid, but um, I I grew up with everything really. Um, didn't want for anything, and I wasn't really so much out of affluency. But anyway, my, I didn't grow up a poor kid. But I remember just tiptoeing in the house if there was clothes hanging on the clothesline. I did, my mother was home. I could tell the cars in the parking lot. I want to go in the house and out of the house because I would just I'm the youngest of six, and she would say Stevie. And, you know, the first thing was she would say, if you would bring the clothes in. Then she could say, if you'd bring the clothes in. And then it goes out saying, when you bring the clothes in, you're supposed to fold the clothes. But then the other thing is, is that bring the clothes in, but also go to the washing machine and take the clothes out and hang those up on the line. Because even fairly wealthy people, you know, now the neighborhoods, you can't have a clothesline. You, but people in America used to hang their clothes out because they didn't want to pay the electric bill. Mm -hmm. So I think what's really happened, Harry Hopman said that about Australia, is affluency, you know, affluenza. Mm -hmm. You know, my brother used to say it's hard to have rich parents and poor kids. And, you know, I mean, a kid today, they've got that little plastic credit card. Mm -hmm. They go to a Panera, they go to a Chipotle, and they have no idea. Um, it used to be, you know, you'd make a couple peanut butter sandwiches and take a banana and you're out the door. It wasn't you're going to get in a car and someone's going to chaperone show for you to go buy lunch um so it's it's really changed and it's not really the parents fault it's just society it's just i mean really i mean are you kidding me i mean what, what's going on is um it's nonsense it's not common sense so what measures can coaches and educators and parents take to mitigate against the potential for kids just being kind of I think you have to hit people with uh, the velvet hammer, but it, it needs to be fact-based. This is your mile time. And you, you want to play college tennis, you wrote that on a goal sheet. In most college programs, you know, say on the men's side, if you're not going to break a 525 mile, which is not difficult to do, mm -hmm. um, you're... And I got a 616 a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, but, but you've improved. You've I have improved. I have improved. But I think also as a young coach... Um, to get more respect, you're mm -hmm. still a young coach, is that you need to work with the athletes and you need to be able to, the actor Bruce Dern, you can't be as a stopwatch. And anything that can be measured can be improved. And, um, you know, can you skip rope? And can, how many double jumps can you do? Um, it needs to be very objective, again, very much fact-based. And mm -hmm. it, it needs to be monitored. I think too many times it's a Miller Lite lesson. The coach just rolls out the basket of balls and, and is there really any improvement? You know, mm -hmm. a lot of times it's just organized chaos, you know, happy, busy, good. Well, it looks like they're training like advanced players. Mm -hmm. And then today, I mean, static balance is like obsolete. Getting kids to slow down, hit, hold their follow through. 
Um, you know, we just went through a match of two young players and, you know, all the woodenisms, John Wooden, mm-hmm. the fundamental doesn't change the speed at which you have to execute the fundamentals. And, you know, I do think that coaches, uh, in tennis, um, because they're commission paid, they kill kids with kindness. <laughs> I do think in, in hockey or, or team sport, you know, kids can be abusive or coaches can be abusive and it gets into, you know, oh, it's terrible stuff. You know, I mean, verbal is uh, a lot better than physical and sexual, mm-hmm. but, um, the, um, yeah. So, um, th- that's where it's really changed. Um, where, um, I don't know the key to success, but I know the key to failure. Make everybody happy. You know, they're doing drills Monday through Friday. They're game based to me, uh, game based, is so you can make more money. Mm-hmm. Form based is form based teaching has gone out the window, and it should be game based and form based, which equals you know a pretty strong combination. You just call it principle based coaching. Mm-hmm. But form based training, I mean, you know, I just say things over and over again. Pete Sampras, one hundred four times to the net, his last match, he didn't influence tennis. If he did, people would have gone to the net. People mm-hmm. don't even talk about Pete. Kim Wittenberg, who we had had on a week ago, mentioned that. Naratilova, underspin backhand, nine Wimbledon titles. It's hard for a tennis group to name nine people hit that shot since she re- she's retired. The Bryan brothers, okay, they served and volleyed. And now, you know, why would a kid play one-up, one-back doubles? Fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade. Mm-hmm. I feel so bad for college tennis coaches because the coaches, the players they get, even top recruits, they don't even know where to stand when they play doubles. Mm-hmm. So... um it sounds doom and gloom. It sounds pessimistic when I start talking about tennis, but, um, you know, it's kind of an inside joke among the coaches that we've trained is that we kind of ruin it for people because it's, it's, you know, and you watch people play and you just see the mistakes like fireworks, like boom, boom, mm-hmm. boom, boom, pow. It's like, whoa. Um, and you know, you just know that, uh, kids have holes in their game. If mm-hmm. you, if you have a hole in your boat, you're not going to put a sail up. So, then you take the form-based approach of coaching and then you get someone shadow swinging and hitting off the cone and drop feeding and then the player complains to the parent and then the parent comes to you and because they've seen it. The player train at other academies and they're more hitting and fun drills and they say, my player is getting really bored. Can we make this more fun? Can we do more points? What for if coaches out there that are listening to this, what what's the right response to that question? You know, so many coaches come and spend time with us and go, How do you get kids to do this? You know, with first of all, we film on the very first day. So if you know, you, you can't fool a kid, but they need to have that comparative experience. And then also kids regulate kids. You know, they look to their left and they're looking to their right. And then how you talk to a kid. They you know, it's not rocket science. You know, people think that we're high tech. We're not high tech. It's just that most people are zero tech. Mm-hmm. You know, the Bradenisms, 19.1 degrees, down the line versus cross court, over and over again, the dimensions of the court and physical laws. You know, we tell coaches, you need to just memorize that. Mm-hmm. You know, what's the number one Bradenism we use? Dimensions of the court, physical laws, mm-hmm. dictate stroke production, no coach's opinion or any unique theory. And if, you know, like say, I mean, I just, these two girls that we just quizzed, I've known one basically her whole life. You know, I've trained her mother when she was 17 years old to be a tennis teacher. Um, she spent collectively quite a bit of time with me. 
And now the other girl, um, she's, she works with Dave Anderson, who we talk about quite often on this podcast. And they just didn't know the answers. You know, mm-hmm. 78, 82 and a half, 65, 9, 19.1, 130, aggressive air margin, two bounce rule. They didn't know. They haven't studied the content. Mm-hmm. I think that what happens is kids get lessened out, programmed out. We were developing better players in America where you took one private a week, kind of like a kid with piano. But then you call your buddy up and you do baskets of balls. Hey, you feed me 10 overheads. I'll feed you 10 overheads. We'll play mini tennis. We'll go hit the backboard. Junior tennis players used to call adults up. And that was great for them to say, hey, Mr. Jones, Mrs. Jones, would you play tennis with me one evening this week? Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't have that youth versus veteran match anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so many things have gone away. Ladders. Um, again, I'm repeating myself. If people were to have listened to all our podcasts, but no, we have this course, Tennis Intelligence Applied. That, you know, we feel that people should watch that three times. Yeah. So if someone's making their living teaching tennis, you watch it the first time through, mm-hmm. second time through, third time through, and you're not going to just watch it once. Mm-hmm. You, you got to go through it over and over again. It, it takes a long time to develop a tennis player. Mm-hmm. It takes a long time to develop a tennis teacher. Um, that comes back to my comment that I don't think people should accept money right out of college. You know, they played a little college tennis and they're just really a glorified sparring partner. Mm-hmm. They, they, people get by 98% people skills. They get hired because they can hit the ball a little bit and they can quote unquote fit in. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to look at my phone. Go I know this it. isn't the smoothest transition for the podcast. Cause I have more questions. No, no, go ahead. It's great. You're written questions down. So, with your coaching knowledge, why just not manage a country club where you have more financial opportunity? Why not take that road for tennis? I remember my brother, Mike, or my brother uh, Matt's wife, Patty, said to me one time, you're training people to do what you don't want to do. Not everybody's working at a country club or resort. Um, you know, when you're working at a resort, you know, you're going to see people for maybe three days, maybe mm-hmm. a week at the longest. So that's a different animal. And um, I've certainly been around, I'd say, I can't say, oh, I've done everything, but I've been around all different types of tennis teaching. And more of my former students, I've been very fortunate to travel here, there, and everywhere to do things with them. Um, yeah, for me, I don't really want to teach tennis at a place where you can charge French fries. Mm-hmm. And I, I've been around that. What do you um, mean, charge French fries? That- well, it's... Uh, you know, I mean, I've taught tennis in some places where I really didn't enjoy that experience, um, where you're teaching rich kids and poor kids are picking balls up. Mm-hmm. I remember one time being in Surabaya, Indonesia, with a coach. I was a lawyer, now Danny Cooper. I said, hey, Cooper, this is going to be a little bit impolite, but we're going to stay here. We're not going to lunch. We're going to stay here and teach the ball kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you have the haves and the have-nots. I think the tennis is going back to that, where it's it's just been mismanaged. It's a money grab and it's become, it's gone back to where it's a rich man sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was one great thing about the tiebreaker with James Van Allen. Tennis just boomed and ten- everybody and their brother was playing tennis. You go to a public park and you'd have to wait to get a tennis court. You could only get the tennis court for one hour. And, you know, pickleball is another topic, but I think tennis players should, should play pickleball and, and win and get in line and, 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 and play and, and benefit from that, but play with your tennis skills. Um, but, um, no, it's, I've, you know, I, I've seen quite a few changes in, in the time that I've been in tennis and, um, it's kind of like the more you have, the less you have. 
and you know kids are walking around with a big shoulder bag and they got all these goodies in the shoulder bag and um you know kids aren't playing other sports and you know it's like hey you're teaching kids and they can't run they can't throw and they can't catch but now it's the electronic toys um so um with i think there's psychic income you know with uh you know, I have some students who work at some pretty posh places and I'll call them up and say, are you on your boat? You know, are you on your yacht? I tease the people I train uh, like yourself now. I've trained mm-hmm. you. So that means um, you've been here three weeks. So that means I get 22.2% of your lifetime earnings. So, so keep saying. I don't remember signing that, but maybe I maybe I did. 22.1, I think. My, well, is it 22.1? No, so... Um, don't get me wrong. I mean, you, you can teach tennis anywhere, and there's some country clubs with, that have produced players, and, but you can't have the country club mentality. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't have it soft. I mean, you know, if you're um, never around athletes, you know, one of my sons went to a Jesuit high school, and it was sad that the, the tennis team didn't have their own courts. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't around the other athletes. You know, he wasn't around kids running cross country and track, and, you know, they'd be ushered off and you know, play five miles away from the campus. So you mean tennis players are isolated from other athletes, but most athletes are in the same general vicinity as each other? Yeah, we always say that, you know, tennis players, you know, they don't have the connection between the bench and the brain. Um, Mom and dad can write a check, put them in a tournament, just cross their fingers. Um, Yeah, to be around other athletes, um, you know, one, to play other sports yourself Mm -hmm. when you're you're coming up. But, um, you know, it's just watching a football game and knowing that was it what you know what's it mean to control the line of scrimmage? What's it mean to control the clock? What's it mean offense, defense, ball possession? Um, so, but just character. Um, it's all about character, mm-hmm. and you know I do think that football, for example, wrestling has really been just decimated with Title IX. It's a non-revenue male sport. But has anybody ever watched wrestlers work out where they're trying to break? weight they're wearing a rubber suit they're climbing up and down ropes you know um and it's just a tough 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 culture football um i think football still teaches the hard lessons um the you know in tennis um you know i know you know some coaches i've worked with that um they just out of principle they cut their best player but a lot of times that doesn't happen because people they sell out for winning sell out for winning. And it's not like, okay, these are, these are the standards of our program and we're not going to have any prima donnas mm-hmm. right? well, because you're the number one player. You get to do this and you get to do that. So um, I think at every level of play, every level of tennis, um, you know, you need, need to really make a critical study. Um, is it about winning or is it, is it about development? Mm-hmm. You know, the type of work that I've been in, is based on development. It's not based on recruitment. Mm-hmm. We don't swear in the podcast, but making chicken salad out of or from chicken, da 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 da. You know, taking a, a C athlete and making them an A player. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, coaching anybody and everybody who's in your corner. You work at this club or this 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 park. Um, you're not out recruiting. You're not out at the being a merchant of flesh. You're not at the weekend tournament mm-hmm. being the glorified third base coach. And you want to coach the kids about to score. Um, you know, the great base, the curriculum we've put together is really for uh, young kids. It's uh, it's for everybody. I mean, Andy Fitzell is always saying, don't pigeonhole it. It's really for the best players at every, every level of the game. Mm-hmm. But 
young kids get such a bad start in tennis. I mean, it's just pitiful. I mean, a kid's say 13 years old and they've been playing five years with a palm up serve and they don't even know it. And their parents have spent a fortune. Yeah. So the USDA does have uh, staff members that travel around the country and they evaluate referees. You know, because everybody wants to get to the U.S. Open and be a referee, mm-hmm. lines person, chairperson at the U.S. Open. And they're, they're really looking for competency. Mm-hmm. You know? um, but that needs to be done. There needs to be some police work, the grip police, the swing police, mm-hmm. the, body, the body balance police. And that's you. Well, um, you know, people ask me my goal. My goal would be to reach out from my grave, and we're working towards that. Not that I'm going to go to the grave tomorrow. Maybe I get run over by a bread truck tomorrow, but reach out for my grave and prove tennis teaching. It's 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 really shameful, mm-hmm. you know, where the game is headed, how the game's been taught, and you know, too many times, on, you know, there's people who love the game, but there's people making decisions on how to teach the game that haven't put sunscreen on in 25 years. You know, they haven't carried a ball hopper in 25 years. And they're sitting around meet tables and meetings and agendas and, okay, how, how can we improve tennis teaching? Um, I think first and foremost, got to educate the parent. You know, the mm-hmm. parent, you know, they are writing checks. Mm-hmm. And the parent, again, repeating myself, the parent needs consumer knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just blindly writing checks. And the coach should have product knowledge, but they don't for the most part. But do you mean knowledge about rackets and strings? No, no, no. Uh, Vic Braden. You know, um, you like blue, buy a blue racket. The racket's engineered beyond man's ability to play. But if there's product knowledge, there's a product. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, you know, we've had coaches visit and go, every kid here has a good-looking serve. That doesn't mean that they're going to set the world on fire. Mm-hmm. But you judge a program, again, Braden, you judge a program by the worst kid in the program. The kid who has the least amount of athletic ability. The kid who's going to take the ice cream cone and put it in the middle of the forehead. Mm-hmm. You don't judge a program based on, and, and that's the merchant of flesh scenario, that typically, you know, the people sitting in the booth, the TV booth, they're mm-hmm. a former player. And, they, okay, do they know the, you know, you know, take the role of the confidant, the mentor. Do they really know how to help the player on the tour? Certainly they can really help a player out. But... Typically, they're not the reason that player is playing on TV. Mm-hmm. You know, it's you know, there's just so many things. Um, so, no, I do, I do think that people would stay with the sport longer. I think people would choose tennis um, if they were taught better in the beginning. You so, know, I would just say education, education, education. So, you said you're concerned about where the game's going. Let's say it was. 20 years ago, and Federer just won, won Wimbledon. He beats Philippouses in 2003. Where did you think the game was going then? And now, and 2022 now, where do you think the game is going? And did you have a much more optimistic view of the future of tennis back then compared to now? And if it is a much more bleak future, um, why do you think it's a more bleak future? And what do you think that future is? I think it would come back to principles that tie into character as people's work ethic, you know, their perseverance or stick to itiveness. Yeah, it's interesting when they changed the grass at Wimbledon. Uh, Federer came to the net more against Sampras in that famous match that he won. And then later when they changed the grass, you, you take five Wimbledons, five mm-hmm. Wimbledons. He came to the net more in the match against Sampras than he did in five consecutive Wimbledons. Oh, yeah, I've, I've heard that. So, 
Um, I do think that, you know, Roger, you know, you got to love Roger Federer. Um, it's such a class act. I mean, I, I quote Roger Federer. I read, and I'm more interested in the character of tennis than technique, for sure. But with Federer, um, I mean, it's got 20 grand slams. They didn't change the grass at Wimbledon. But, um, you know, he's, he was running around his backhand, playing in the Dallas lefty forehand. You know, then Djokovic comes along, and Brad Gilbert used the same line he had for Agassi. His backhand was a gift from God. And... Um, you know, in 2017, Roger, he answers questions a little differently now. He started using tennis analytics, but, um, you know, here's a great, great player. Someone just asked me about Bill Jacobson's aggressive error margin. And I said, well, one time Federer, he's playing uh, Nadal at the French. He came in 17% of the time, won 73% of the points. Now, you can't just go by stats. People can twist and turn numbers and make a story out of it, but... Um, you know, you, you got to the point where I should have listened to my father. Mm-hmm. You know, don't be chicken. Hit the backhand. Quit running around the backhand. Go yeah, forward. Yeah. More net appearances. You know, if he was asked, you know, uh, and I, I do think that, you know, you'd have to look at numbers, but when, with, with Edberg, he was coming in more. But they asked him, uh, you know, why don't you come in as much as Edberg? He goes, if I volleyed like Edberg, I would. Um, it's just, I'd love, I think those answers are great. So you say with your concerned maybe with the character of tennis and you point out someone like Federer who's just such a great role model he's such a great temperament he's just deals with the fans and the media so well and then I think of someone like Kyrgios who's got so much natural ability but he he throws his racket and almost hits a ball boy in the face I think when he loses to to Nadal in Indian Wells. And is is someone like Kyrgios, do you think, part of the maybe the issues with the character of of tennis at the moment? Well, I, I think I think Kyrgios sells tickets. You know, the bad boy of tennis. People used to love Johnny Mack play. Mm-hmm. And then, then on the senior tour, they're looking for him to, uh, you can't be serious. Um, you know, so with Federer, um, the you know I think if people go back and again his mother um, when he was eight years old his lessons he stood in place on balance long follow throughs you know his Australian influence mm-hmm. you know his appreciation for the history of the game you know so you think back about Harry Hopman and I mean he was coached by Tony Roach but even before that Peter Carter um, so you know Curios I mean you got to the point well I'm going to go play basketball he was very good junior basketball player, but then somebody in the NBA wants to say, hey, quit telling people you're, you're going to quit tennis and play pro basketball. Uh, that's not happening. But um, with, you know, he's serving no volley. Can you imagine if he could really volley? What a great serve, so loose and out in front to the right. Um, with, uh, But, you know, a lot of ways, uh, you know, live and let live, but if you're making $20,000 a week mm-hmm. and more than that, um, with, you know, tennis needs to regulate tennis. You mm-hmm. know, if, if he was in the PGA, Peter Jacobson said years ago about John McEnroe, Peter Jack Jacobson, a great golf pro, side, side note, he could imitate all the players so well, all the idiosyncrasies. But, you know, he said about McEnroe, we'd like to have him in the PGA so we could kick him out on the first day. <laughs> it took tennis a long time before McEnroe got the boot. Um, you know, TV ratings, um, but... 
No, I, I, I do think that many times what happens now is so much contact with the pros just through YouTube clips and tennis channel, um, your people sending you things through your telephone. Um, I do think it's unfortunate that like say 12 year olds, you know, and then coaches are saying, well, the modern game, this is how the fed hits. And, you know, they don't really know how Federer hits the ball. Mm-hmm. Are we going to teach what's happened or what's happening? Mm-hmm. And people are all about what happens after the impact point. Mm-hmm. You know, the ball's gone and well, turn the doorknob and here's the windshield wiper and here's a modern forehand. And, but when the umpire, again, a Bradenism, the umpire is going to say, ready, play. Mm-hmm. Can the kid play? Um, but with Nick uh, Kyrgios, um, you know, I look at it a little differently now. I look at it like with John Isner said, well, let Nick just keep on being Nick. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, Nick, Bal- Nick Balateri, you know, publicity is publicity. Even when it's bad, it's mm-hmm. still publicity. So um, with, uh, but you know, I do think that, um, you know, it has to be pretty extreme where the, the player's behavior uh, where they really heavily find a lot of times mm-hmm. it's, it's just a slap on the wrist when Con- yeah. Connors and McEnroe, they used to get suspended and they would make more money playing exhibitions, mm-hmm. you know, and they'd be bounced off the tour for a little bit. So Zverev played, I think a doubles match this year. And I, I my, I'm not a hundred percent certain of the facts, but at one point in the match, what I recall what happened is he went up to the umpire's chair and he hit his racket against the umpire's chair but my recollection is that there was no suspension. Do you think tennis is, if that's true, do you think tennis is, is responding to his, that behavior in the right way? Well, you know, I don't really know the ins and outs. I remember that incident, but I, I, I couldn't rattle off uh, how much he was fined or, you know, was he suspended? So I don't know the ins and outs of that, but you know, I think Zverev, he's going to listen to me and go, who's that guy? He, he needs to go sit in section F and eat popcorn. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do remember him one time and it was sent to me like by 20 people the next day. He said, my father gave me the great base. Um, oh, Zverev did. Oh, he just said that, you know, he's, it, 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 you know, he had hired Lendl, but at the same time he was, uh, acknowledging what his father had done for him, but great, great tennis player, uh, moves well for such a big guy. And, you know, um, he's making millions of dollars. We, you know, some of the people we know that are trying to make money, we try to stay away from talking about their game. But, you know, he doesn't play that much doubles. Typical of young people today. Um, like Jimmy Connors, people wouldn't remember that, you know, he won the U.S. Open and, and Wimbledon playing doubles with Nastasi. Mm-hmm. With old Bankston, uh, Bjorn Borg, he won Davis Cup as, as a young player going to the net. Um, but it became so much money in the game that people quit playing doubles. Mm-hmm. You know, I do think in junior tennis, uh, it'd be great to have a singles and doubles ranking combined. You know, you, you know, Battle of Boca, great concept as far as getting people to play. And I know you've been around it for three weeks now and, you know, people aren't playing doubles. It's too, mm-hmm. too expensive. Yeah. You know, it used to be like, well, we'll charge them five more dollars. We'll add that to the singles entry fee for the new can of balls. And it wasn't, look, it wasn't looked at so much as a business. Um, the... Um, you know, I think that, you know, the tennis parents throughout America, they should boycott and go, okay, we're, the tennis parents are going to create their own circuit. Right. And they're, they're not paying such large checks, you know, okay, we're, we're playing no ad sets to four in the back draw with a 10-point tiebreaker. There's no such thing as a third set anymore. It's like, are you kidding me? 
So um, tennis does need a commissioner and, um, you know, for the good of the game. And, you know, I do think that uh, capitalism is not perfect. You know, not in the politics, I'm, it's not like I'm a socialist, but um, said it for the third time, it's a money grab. So how has it gone to the point that in the Battle of Boca, the entry fee for singles is $135, and then one of our players won the back draw, and he got a check for $38, but if he could give his social security number, it would be $50. So they're basically saying, hey... You're going to. We're going to give you fifty of the dollars back. We're going to give. We're going to keep eighty-five. Yeah. And they say congratulations, but no, it's not congratulations. Well, there's some false advertising of that too. They'll, you know, they'll say this is how much money's in the tournament, but that's if they have two hundred fifty-six people play, and the draws are never quite that large. Um, it is good that some money's going back to the players. You know, it's good that the NCA now you can make ten thousand dollars and still be an amateur, and if you put your expenses against that uh nobody's really making money you gotta be such a good player to make make money um but that is one thing with the usta that's better than the utr is the usta has some regulations on what you can charge the, the, the this U tournament was a u boca is a utr it's, a, it's a universal tennis rating program and you know dave fish walked away from the organization i did so much to launch it dave howell really put it together based on the french system and um it's a money grab da, 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 that um, it should be genderless, ageless. It should be systematic where. What do you mean genderless? Do you think the girls should play boys? Billie, yeah. Billie Jean King fought for that forever. In 12 and under tennis, the boys and girls should be playing. You know, we just have to have more tennis being played. We used to, in Florida years ago, have A tournaments and B tournaments. Mm -hmm. and you had to win two B tournaments to play an A tournament. Mm -hmm. um, you'd go to any municipality and there'd be a ladder. And you could you call someone up, and you'd have to who's ranked below you on the ladder, and you have to defend. And then you could call someone above. Mm -hmm. You have to play two matches per week, and it was free. Yeah, it was free. And the caretakers of the game, the guardians of the game, um, just it's unfortunate, you know. It, um, tennis teachers should teach. You know, I don't think it's a matter. Well, I'm going to become a tournament director. Um, tournaments are always going to be there. You know, ITFs. I mean, I was at the ITF. The last couple of days and uh, ITFs, uh, idiots traveling foolishly. <laughs> you have no business being at an ITF tournament, but some people are under the impression that if you play an ITF, you're, you're, you're on the path to become a pro. And in this country, if you play a USTA, you're on the path to become a college tennis player. Uh, one thing that's amazing about the, I, the uh, UTR is, you know, some kids should be in their backyard in Florida playing a UTR and they're in Barbados. Yeah, I mean, I, a friend of mine, he makes a good living um, taking wealthy kids, Scandinavian kids to uh, kind of out of the way places like say Guam, Costa Rica, wherever. And they, with the idea they can get some, you know, more, they can get more ITF points, mm -hmm. but it comes back. Mom and dad is basically this is your game will get you points. Points won't get you game. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with the UTR, people are obsessed by it. Um, you know, it it shouldn't be um, like you're a nine point one, you're a nine point two. It should just be your nine. You know, when it goes to the decimal point, then it does become a ranking. Mm -hmm. And it should be, um, you know, that happened in the U.S. So many mistakes in the U.S. where um, 
you know, they you say Kalamazoo are, you know, in San Diego for the girls, but Kalamazoo, among American tennis, I'm always telling American kids when they go to college, you know, the, the foreign players you're playing against, they've never heard of Kalamazoo. But you know, I think it was 1959, maybe it was 56, where Rod Laver, he won Kalamazoo. It used to be 64 draw, open to foreigners, played oh. played on red clay. And in the 18th, every match was best of five sets. In the under 18s? Yeah, NCAs used to be everything best of five sets. Of course, you know, it was different. You know, now you have to think of wear and tear on the body on a hard court. And the ball is going almost twice as fast. So mm-hmm. when, when kids look at film and they go, oh, the pros were lousy. No, the pros were really skilled. But it was played at a slower rate because... Uh, Chris Clora was on. I love his line. People were trying to launch missiles. And, you know, some kids got a babolat. Pete Sampras, son Christian, if he had played tennis, he was asked, what would you do? I recommend he learn to play with a wooden racket. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, tennis, tennis, tennis. So Andy Roddick won the U.S. Open in 2003, and there's the last time, obviously, a man has won a Grand Slam from the States. Why do you think that's the case, and what do you think we would need to change in coaching in, in America to have another American lift a Grand Slam trophy? Oh, Kim Wittenberg said so many great things when we talked to him. That's a lie. You know, I, um, untapped Chris, uh, Kim Wittenberg. So Roddick, he wins. He's great. He's, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, two older brothers, um, that really helps out. His parents were very wealthy, but they pretty much raised him with kind of a blue-collar mentality. I just always was, you know, on the outskirts of Roddick because when I lived in Tyler, Texas, mm-hmm. you know, the family lived in Austin, Texas. I came to Boca Raton, Florida. They were in Boca Raton or Delray Beach. Um, you know, a couple times when they owned an academy and then some of my former students, actually the the, the lead guy, um, they purchased it. They kept mm-hmm. the Roddick name, and I was invited out there to train coaches. Um, first of all, Roddick has a great serve. Mm-hmm. Um, he had palm up. We have a film where his mother said he had a pitiful serve. He put his racket in the salute position out of frustration. That's why. He, that's how it happened. Yeah, um, Stan Bostit talks about he did it. He learned that through experimentation, and he stayed with mm-hmm. it. And I know a lot of people got their serves messed up because everybody's trying to hit with an abbreviated service motion. But Roddick, um, I saw him compete. You know, never coached him for two seconds, but I saw him compete. Going back to that, I saw his brother John compete. I mean, I was at the US Open at a table on a rainy day, and I went up and I thanked John because I just got back from the Roddick Academy. And I said, you know, I coached against you. And I just mentioned uh, two players, Chad Clark and Clayton Stanley. He looked at me and he said, victory or death. John Roddick was an animal and, and John Roddick the way he hit the ball very similar to Andy you know he's a good tennis player played at the University of Georgia and um, Roddick didn't make a lot of errors mm-hmm. you know outside in on the backhand no loop on the backhand um, you know again a family um, you know, they were wealthy enough where he went to the US Open you know his birthday's right around the, that time the first of September mm-hmm. and uh so many great Andy Roddick stories, but um, hungry dog hunts best. Uh, but you know why? I don't buy into the fact that we don't have enough athletes. It is true that you know the public school sports in the fall. You go football, winter basketball, and then baseball. Lacrosse is really a growing sport now, fast growing sport. But um, 
you know, I do think coming from Nebraska, you know, knowing football, knowing all sports, you know, jockocracy, I mean, he just had a competitive mind. Um, when I saw him play, um, I can remember I was the director of Seguzo Bassett, and he just was up the street. He just he just trained with Macy for a short period of time, but just to watch him play, there was a kid named Jason Hazley uh, that we worked with. Another kid, uh, his last name was Brook. His father's a teaching pro. I remember they just came over and played played matches, and mm-hmm. you know Roddick was just the ultimate warrior. I mean, Macy tells a story when they're playing flag football. He's the youngest, smallest kid. And he runs down the field. He tries to tackle somebody. Um, one of our students beat Roddick at the uh, Kalamazoo 16s, and he never looked at the photos. You know, you hear about people like that. You know, he just cried for three days. Um, you know, I never was really around Jim Courier. We used to do some things for his uh, foundation, but, you know, Audra's sister was around her a bunch, and she tells a story that the first time he lost, he cried for like three days. So That's Roddick? No, it's Roddick and, and uh, Courier. Mm-hmm. Roddick's being introduced at the Hall of Fame and Courier's sitting behind him. And he goes, I, I really like the fact that Courier's behind me because he had a crappy backhand too. But when you listen to people, do they have, do they have a dose of honesty? Mm-hmm. And, you know, he through his parents, mother and father, he had that, through his older brothers. Um, so it's character, I mean, uh, with, uh, but so, you know, do, uh, you know, I mean, how many, how many other countries are really developing Grand Slam champions? It's not that easy. I mean, how many Grand Slam champions are coming from France? You know, how many Grand Slam champions? So Canada's doing well, but how many Grand Slam champions do they have? They've got mm-hmm. uh, Bianca Andrescu, but Bouchard was close in a semi of Wimbledon, and, you know, Alex and Dennis are coming up. And But to actually be a Grand Slam champion, uh, and you start thinking on the men's side, I mean, Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic, I mean, it's been like a closed fraternity. Mm-hmm. Um, but, no, I think that we need to do a better job um, you know, a young kid, it's just circumstantial that we filmed quite a bit when we started uh, doing more things. Um, one of our students, uh, Eric Oberhammer, uh, he unfortunately died from leukemia, but he started our Facebook page. You know, he's bedridden. And then from the time he died, we started putting something up every day. And um, this kid, uh, we've had all sorts of kids become very good junior players. Um, um, Victor Lilov. There's all sorts of film on Victor Lilov. And um, you, you've met some kids this the past three weeks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think of uh, Anastasia, who you know mm-hmm. from Toronto. She's really improving. Mm-hmm. And she had to totally rebuild her game. Mm-hmm. She played like five years and like, no, you got to go back to scratch. But then uh, the girl, um, Taisia, is a couple years younger. Um, what I would say is, can you imagine if we had 10,000 kids in the U.S.? trying to play like both those girls. Mm-hmm. And that's what needs to happen. The coaches need to work together. It, 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 we have to understand in tennis, the competition, and you do want your kids to play soccer and basketball and play these other sports, but to separate and have the kids choose tennis, if, if they could really improve their skill set. And it, it comes down to information. So then how would you get everyone to buy into the... Maybe I think you said before you don't like that phrase, but to choose the same system, something that goes along the system that you haven't created, but that you've built through the works of 
bodies of work that you've accumulated from other people over all uh, you know I, I was flattered by Vic Brayton many times he said Steve we should have had a master plan and you know that, I, that Vic and I should have been working together and I said yeah Vic you would have gone forward with a flashlight making all these new discoveries and I would have gone back with a club and hit people over the head I mean did you get it I mean your kids don't have the ready position your kids have you know like Robert Lansdorp one time at the USTA and he was the best they had they had the bees. They had Boletieri, Braden, Burwash, Vandermeer, and Lansdorp. Big name tennis coaches in America. And, you know, Peter's business, he's a Canadian, was based in the States. And Robert didn't swear, but it seemed like he was swearing because it came to his sake. You know, he's like, for crying out loud, for freaking that, you know, the USTA has taken all these kids. They're 15 years old. They're hanging on to the racket like it's a freaking frying pan. And I had... I wasn't there, but I got a manuscript, mm-hmm. you know, and Vic, you know, he was asked at that time, he started talking about brain typing and, and, uh, I used to always tell Vic, Vic, when you go to conferences, don't talk about brain scans, electromyography, um, just ask people to come out and take a tennis lesson and right before their eyes, you know, get someone to totally change their serve. And it's not like he was a magician, mm-hmm. but you know, he, self-made biomechanist, a licensed psychologist, but he actually was somebody who was in the trenches. Most mm-hmm. most people that have leadership roles and they're at a conference, they've never really taught tennis. They, they're just pretending. I mean, they're saying, well, this is how I do it. This is my program back home. And it's like, there's no program. <laughs> I mean, come on, you know, you know, I mean, just to get someone to be, go from being a beginner to the point where they can play in college, mm-hmm. that that's not easy. That's mm-hmm. not easy. So- um, no. So how would you, I know the expression buy in, you got to educate the consumer. So the, then the, they the, choose the right people. So what happens is tennis is marketed. It's regulated through making it fun. The kids want to come back. The mm-hmm. only, only business is a repeat business. You go to a, a function, the USPTA, PTR. I'm a, been a member of both for a long, long time, 40 years. And I was a tester and I think people, should, you're, 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 you're in the U.S., okay, become a member of both organizations. You can't have a critical voice if you're not an insider. Mm-hmm. But there, I think there's still more meetings on how to make money um, the, um, than there is on how to make players. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're in the tennis business. Uh, you know, you, you go to a meeting, it's, you know, the overhead is not the overhead. It's all about finances. It's all about, you know, dollars generated and this and that. It's, it's not like, okay... You know, where are we with, um, you know, our 18-year-olds? Where are we with the 16-year-olds? And it should be like a train mm-hmm. where the, the older kids are pulling the, the train and the, the early childhood development, the ECD group, that's the caboose. And, um, you know, people are bopping and shopping in, in America. You know, they don't stay with the same club, but there's two sides to that. You know, we have an article that's on our uh, website um, you know, why do people change coaches so many times? Well, a short answer, the pros do the same thing and people look at what the pros do. Um, but, you know, it's certainly, there's a great deal of incompetency, but, um, you know, our kids really taught to give back to a program or they just take from a program. When someone is, you know, been with a tennis program, say, you know, through elementary school, now they're junior high and now they're in high school, they should be a student teacher. Mm-hmm. They should be able to give back. You know, they should be a role model and everybody should train together. Granted that you have to have comp- compatibility factors, 
But I like to have a program where everybody starts at the same time. Yeah. You've seen that since you've been here. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, you know okay, young five-year-old, his grandfather is a student of what we've studied. And it's like, yeah, he can come hang out with us. We'll make it work. Oh, Mark. Yeah, Mark's um, amazing. Yeah. No, he's... Um, He's a pilot, you know. A reti- oh, he's a reti- pilot? Retired pilot. But, oh, I can believe that. But the details, you know, get in the cockpit, check, check, check. And, um, you know, is this thing going to fly? Is mm-hmm. this, is, is this going to work? You know, that's one thing about a pilot. One time I was in Denver where Continental was based, and I was just talking about, you know, and pilots talk to each other. Like, oh, I've got 20,000 hours, and they talk about all the regulations and everything you have to do. And this gentleman was very nice, and the people hosting the workshop Next thing I know, I'm in a simulator, and the, the gentleman was so nice, he made it seem like I was flying a 747, and we're, we're landing at night in a hailstorm. Is that a Boeing 747 Max? But, but it was a simulator. It was like a, okay, a, good. It's like okay, a, good. It's like a, I don't know, a $10 million toy. And um, with, um, but just think about how easy it is to be a tennis teacher. You know, we put together this curriculum. We got to revise a curriculum where it took two years to get a degree in tennis teaching. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it still hasn't come together, but I remember telling Ron Woods, who has a PhD, and he was the first director of the player development program. As I said, there should be one of these in every state. But then the curriculum, I would say to this day, they really, they, the governing body of tennis, the USTA, and of course everybody points their fingers at the USTA and they do lots of, so many great things and great people, but do they have a curriculum after all these years? And, um, again, Dave Anderson, Back to the Future, Braden's book. I mean, Tennis for the Future. It's fact based. Mm-hmm. You know, do you know? Again, those girls were in here. I mean, telling them, I can't have a conversation with you if you don't know uh, the tennis courts are rectangle. Yeah, you, know, you take seventy-eight, you divide it in half. It's thirty-nine. Thirteen steps to the net. Your short ball range. Da 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 da. Yeah, yeah. But I think kids, kids today, they think, well, no, the coach is supposed to know that. I'm not supposed to do that. I feel like when I'm talking to tennis kids, weakest kids on the planet, is I'm, <laughs> is I'm spoon feeding them, and they don't feel the responsibility. Like I really have to know this, and they have so many caretakers. It's like everything's going to work out. It's like no, it's not. You know, less than three percent of kids get to, to the level where they play college tennis, and there's all this money spent. And I don't think there's any accountability where you say, okay, what is this tennis facility produced? Mm-hmm. You know, like all throughout Florida, they have these communities with uh, public facilities. And of course, now, unlike back in the 70s when I first came to Florida, you think of uh, like Chrissy Everett and all the great tennis players that came out of Holiday Park, is now juniors don't think they can learn at a municipality. Mm-hmm. They, they've got to be at some fancy academy. Um, you know, rather to hire somebody that we spent a lot of years with, he called us one time uh, the anti academy. Someone mm-hmm. can, somebody can come and see us. And um, that just happened this past weekend. A couple of kids that had been highly ranked, uh, very highly ranked with tennis recruiting and such, is um, we're going to film. Mm-hmm. We're going to film, and we're not going to we're not going to use them as a, a magnet. Like, okay, if you're in our program, that's where academies. Everybody knows. Everybody should know. No, everybody doesn't know. Let me slow down. Everybody should know that academies are a backroom deal. I really respect for Nick. You know, Braden's in the Hall of Fame based on education. Vandermeer's in the Hall of Fame based on education. Hopman, so many things about Mr. Hopman. He's in the Hall of Fame. 
Terry got in not on in, in education, but he got in on the environment he put together. Mm-hmm. You know, and hats off to Nick Terry. I mean, he's he's the godfather of the academy, mm-hmm. and that word was based on discipline. But now everything's an academy. But kids 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 can come to us, and um, you know they may come for say two weeks, and and we don't advertise, but you know people send us students, and and if someone is here, they're gonna they're gonna play if they're here for a longer period of time. Well, I'll just let them play for the first couple of days. And but we're going to film and record, and it's not we're, gonna tell, we're not going to tell them what we think. We're going to tell them what we know, and say, okay, you're telling us these are your goals, but you're never going to hit a serve. Never is a strong word, but that comes back to getting aerial. You can see movement, but you can't see forces. Is that you know they're hitting it right-handed and their their left foot spinning out to the net post. They they look like they're on a diving board, jackknifing. Their butts going backwards. And they've been told, toss over your head, arch your back. And I mean, they can hit a little kick on their serve, but they don't know that the light at the end of the tunnel is a train coming right at them mm-hmm. because they can't serve. Yeah, yeah. But yet, you know, they're playing against other kids who can't serve. And in little kid tennis, nobody can serve. No one's hitting point-ending shots off the serve. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a point starter. So the economics of tennis then, because you said, well, if we were to make a really good plan, it should say, hey, you got a like, junior player development pipeline, and you say, how many players do we have that are coming up in the 18s, the 16s, the 14s, the 12s? Do you think, with your knowledge of coaching and the business coaching, do you think that there's a financial incentive to company, to tennis academies to evaluate how they structure their programs through that lens? Or do you think that the program, the way programs do it or clubs do it is actually geared towards making more money? Do you think, do you think being more performance conscientious will actually make more money? Because it seems to me that the vast majority of clubs aren't performance conscientious because they assume it will make more money but they actually don't know that because they haven't tested the theory out what do you think well a couple of things i mean you could pick a city uh syracuse shreveport seattle and many times the coaches are protecting one another because everybody's doing the same thing mm-hmm. you know okay you get a, a you get a kid on a ball hopper that's played a little high school tennis a little college tennis and the glorified ball feeder at another, another level Parents looking for a shortcut, and they're looking for the glorified sparring partner, you know, because they think, okay, this this coach can hit the ball quite well, you know, the individual becomes bigger in the program, and then the parent, you know, says, no, I'm not going to do the program, I'm going to go hire this sparring partner, and the sparring the sparring partner is compelled to talk because they're overpaid, mm-hmm. you know, and again, I say things over and over again. In boxing, the sparring partner wears a helmet, a mouth guard, and they don't say anything. Um, with money, you know, people are so concerned about the bottom line. You know, I did some work for Tennis Corporation of America, Midtown Tennis years ago, and, and it was the bottom line, the bottom line. And, you know, you, so we're going to knock down the estate and build a house, but you got to educate the consumer. So what's going to happen is people are going to fall by the wayside. No, I don't want to do that. It shouldn't be based on what a kid wants. Have them fill out the goal sheet. Mm-hmm. They want to be a college tennis player. They want to be a pro. And then you have a written file and video file. It takes work. It's labor intense in the beginning. Mm-hmm. You skill test the people. And then it's like telling the parents, your kid is in the ninth grade and they got a fourth grade reading level. Mm-hmm. You know, like, boom, it's education. 
And then you have a video, and then you have to make that video and send it home for the parents to watch. And the coach isn't there. Watch this narrated slow motion analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, you feed them 25 shots to designated targets, and they make 10, and you go, hey, your kid's at the 40 percentile. Mm-hmm. So you, you learn from other walks of life, like Dennis Vandermeer, who had a background in the military that really helped him with group dynamics. But Vandermeer, he studied elementary school teachers. And um, so if you were to be people motivated first, there's going to be profit. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you know, people don't think engineers can sell. The engineers can sell because they really know the product. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not the rah-rahs, you know, they don't have to get myself in trouble, like the marketing person's mm-hmm. mentality, but they know the product. And um, so, you know, I've gone places and told people, well, why don't you do this? At least have a divide where this is how you're going to teach the kids, you know, from age five to age 10. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what you're going to do. Um, so it's not a matter of, um, you know, like, okay, we have to totally change this. You know, you can give kids, Dan, Vandermeer was excellent at this. I did this for a while and it was really good is Dennis had a program where, um, I get it right, where Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday match simulated drills. Now mm-hmm. we, we, that's how we did it, but we took the idea from Dennis and tweaked it for our program. So Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, it's match simulated drills. Mm-hmm. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we're working on skills. Mm-hmm. And now kids don't sign up for Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Of course, they, they don't uh, want to come out and you know shadow swing and toss balls to one another and hit balls in the alley. Kids don't even know why they hit balls in the alley. Okay, the alley's a sidewalk. Down the line's a sidewalk. Cross court's a sidewalk. Path of the racket, path of the target. Connected dots. A goes to B. And they don't make the connection. So, but anyway, we did that. And I was in Tyler, Texas for 10 years. The second five years I was there, we had a program that produced more state champions in Dallas and Houston combined. But, well, how do you get people to do that? Well, first of all, yeah, gotta, you got to care. You know, they, mm-hmm. how's it go? Chuck Creasy mentioned that on a podcast. Um, s- students don't care what you know until they know that you care. I mean, you have to be wrapped up in your students. You get to the point where it's like, no, it's their game. It's not my game anymore. Mm-hmm. And then you, um, you know, you, you just have to show up every day and work like a farmer, you mm-hmm. know, to produce fruit. Um, so, you know, then what happened over time is the kids that came on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you know, and their parents said, oh, and you just say, you just tell people, well, I really recommend they do this. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the point where even on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you still take one court on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday and go, no, 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 you don't need to be in the mat simulated drills right now because it's going to be instruction, destruction. I remember being a young coach going, this is downright stupid. You know, you give somebody a, a half hour lesson on their serve, they're coming around, and then they're, they're one court over when you're giving your next lesson and they're playing doubles and they're mm-hmm. hitting the serve the wrong way. I can remember working for All-American Sports, and this is my hockey background, is I'm, they put me in charge of an adult camp, and I had to run this, on Monday night, this wine and cheese party on, on court, like a round-robin social. And I'm going, I'm not doing that. I said, I'll run, I'm going to run wine and cheese, but I'm going to make it a practice session. And I got to make it social and make it work and make it fun. I get some music playing and rotate partners. Mm-hmm. I'll go off on a tangent on this. I did this in a, a place in West Hampton. There was two vending machines, one on the outside of the pro shop and one on the inside of the pro shop. And if you had ordered a beer, and these people had money, 
And the beer back then, it was so fortune. You'd order a beer, it'd have to come from the, the, the other side of the road. The place was right on the ocean. But the tennis courts are on the other side of the ocean. So some men get done, some women get done. They want to have a drink, and they order th- something from the, the bar. And they got to wait for the beers to be delivered. Mm-hmm. We only did it with beer. But I was in charge of the camp. And I got a jar, a coffee jar, a can, and I filled it with quarters. And people would be done, and I would say, so there was Coca-Cola and 7-Up in the, in the vending machine on the outside. But inside the pro shop, we had beer and against the law. We had beer in the vending machine. Mm-hmm. And back then, you put a quarter in. You just say to two guys, four guys, you get done playing doubles, hey, you guys want a beer? And, you know, I just put in four quarters, and I walk out with four, four cold beers. Or I had the gal in the pro shop doing that. And I swore, I got everybody to swear, you know, even to the point where we have to hide the empty beer bottles so management won't see them. And Mm -hmm. we have to, we can't put the empty beer bottles in the dumpster. Uh And I said, and I said, there's going to be a tip jar and everybody will just split the tips. And, uh, and it worked like a charm, you know, did it for an entire outdoor season. And, uh, you know, it was just great, but, um, that's a tangent for you. The vending machines. What else you got? What else have I got? I'm going to check my phone. This is my brain, actually, because I can't form long-term memories anymore. I would, I, I wouldn't, I'm done with the skills to use my phone to type notes. I'd have to use pencil and paper here. True. So is, is pickleball bad for a, a tennis player's technical competency to play pickleball? Right now, if you can't beat him, join him. You can't beat them, join them, good play. I, you know, we need to order some uh, pickleball rackets. I have some spec rackets, and I think that's fantastic that they're putting this together where it's, um, you know, I think maybe you could show up and play pickleball with a spec racket. That I, I don't know how that would really work, but Dave Fish used that term. I never heard it. A bridge sport. If you play, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, paddle tennis where they took a wooden paddle, perforated dr- holes in it, punctured tennis ball. Althea Gibson, Pancho Gonzalez, Bobby Riggs started with that sport. And, um, but with pickleball, you know, I was told, well, the kitchen, I went to a clinic once. I've never played it, but I watched it. I walked by it on a regular basis. And, you know, it's such a casual sport. You show up, you sit on the bench, and you just get your turn to play. And I think tennis players should show up and go, let me, let me play. Yeah. And, and it's free. In most places, it's free. It's fantastic how it's working. And... Um, you know, it's, you know, we miss the boat where people my age, you know, Hey, you know, would you play with a green dot ball? Probably not. The rally ball was 7% bigger back in the eighties. The only bad thing with the rally ball is it wouldn't go through a ball machine, mm-hmm. but people didn't want to play with the rally ball. It was 7% bigger. It was slower. It was, it was Are great. Are you talking about pickleball or tennis? No, tennis. Yeah, yeah. Tennis, the rally ball back in the eighties. So people have tried, you know, we used to take tennis balls, put them in a washing machine and take a metal brush to try to slow them down. And for the longest time, get people to practice with dead tennis balls because, you know, the same thing with the transition balls, slow it down. Uh, but, you, you know, it's, it's gone away. Why can't kids play mini tennis and just be told don't hit the ball hard? Uh, so I think we, we missed out with uh, uh, pickleball. It's invading tennis. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard someone who's an expert, uh, Brandon Flanagan, you know, FM Tennis Performance Center, he introduced me to someone here who has five squash courts and was a you know, top 10 player in the world in squash. And he said that, you know, he, he's all for pickleball, but they're invading tennis. 
And you know, around the country, yeah, we have too many empty tennis courts. There's some major companies, I understand Lifetime Fitness is spending a lot of money converting tennis courts to pickleball. So you, you need court time, you need athleticism, you need competition. Um, yeah, I would have kids play tournaments. I would mm-hmm. say, hey, this weekend we're going to play a pickleball tournament because tennis, kids, tennis skills still prevail. Mm-hmm. And that's where a kid, you know, you know they need to come in and, and volley and take the ball out of the air and split step, have the organized position. And, and most kids in tennis can't volley. Mm-hmm. You know, the, I mean, the, on the backhand volley, Young kids go to a one-handed backhand volley too soon. They think they're hitting it one-handed, but you do the film, they're hitting two-handed anyway. We have this film of Sampras. It's on, course, Tennis Intelligence Ply, and he's just driving a two-handed backhand volley. And there's so many named coaches who will say never hit a two-handed backhand volley. Mm-hmm. So little kids, um, you know, the argument on whether you should change your grip or not, um, you know, you have to straighten your arm out on a backhand volley. You have to turn. I mean, there's time to change your grip. But kids aren't even volleying. Mm-hmm. You go to a, you go to a futures level tournament, people aren't even warming up mm-hmm. at the net. You go to an NCA Division One match, Power Five conference. And I hate to say it, but it's a good chance that two of the three teams are playing one up, one back. Mm-hmm. It's a crisis. Yeah, it's like let's stop the bleeding. I mean, mm-hmm. let's help out. And I do think that people, you know, are too politically correct. You know, Wayne Bryan, you know, what happened to his letter, a famous letter that he wrote? Uh, and he's a Pied Piper. He's been great for this game. What, how he's been with his wife as well, Kathy Blake, how they, their kids are just ambassadors. They're not kids anymore. Ambassadors for the sport. And, um, no, I mean, you know, I, I don't think that you can just tell everybody, hey, you're doing a great job, and everybody's edifying one another. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at what ha- what's happened to high school tennis. You know, high school tennis, this idea of uh, a no-cut policy. Well, well, isn't that great? <laughs> Everybody signs up. And, you know, for 15 years I was in Tampa. I spent a lot of years at a, court, a place with 28 tennis courts. And high school tennis was like a picnic. You know, it's like, you know, it's, it's your turn to bring refreshments. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're bringing cupcakes to tennis practice or cupcakes so they can have after the match. And it's like, let's, let's have tennis be a sport. And, um, you know, we're not working as hard anymore. College tennis, it used to be you couldn't play your freshman year and be a developmental program. I remember one time being in Tyler, Texas, at a big high school function. And uh, I was asked to, um, you know, certainly I'm not, a, uh, you know, very well known, but okay, I'm in Tyler, Texas. I'm running this program. I'm introduced and I'm there to hand out trophies. Said, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. But I said, what about the JVs? And they said, there's no, tur- there's no trophies for the JVs. It's just trophy for varsity. And I said, well, I apologize, but I can't hand out the trophies. I said, you got to be kidding me. You have trophies for the varsity, but not trophies for the JVs? Who's the JVs? It means junior varsity. People, okay. don't, people don't even know what that means. Um, it used to be on the USPTA test. Um, JV also means junior vet, like 35s. Uh-huh. And um, so... Now everybody makes a team. I've coached so many kids. So many kids have been sent to me over the decades now. And, you know, they're a pretty good player, which means they're pretty bad. And um, they're number one at their public high school. They're the number one player. That's such a bad message for kids. You know, but now what happens is kids... What's a bad message? That they're a freshman and they're the number one player in the building. No, there's no way you should be the number one player when you're a freshman. Mm -hmm. But what happens is... um, Kids who play homeschool, they don't play team tennis anymore. 
And that's too sad. I used to be a big proponent, play high school tennis, be a part of the team. And, you know, I mean, then you get to the point, just like pickleball, if you can't beat them, join them, go, well, you know, now, you know, you're going to play all these matches and they're 6-0, 6-0. And here in Florida, it was four. I don't, I'm not current with the rules, but, you know, the the Volunteers, the Saddlebrook, the big academies is they can put a team in the high school state tournament Mm -hmm. and you only have to play four matches. That's what it was. Maybe they've changed. You only have to play four matches to play in the state tournament. And also too, is that kids play high school tennis and they don't have to go to practice. Mm-hmm. That's a bad message. Yeah. You know, even if you're the best player. Um, so my father used to use the term prima donna is when a kid becomes a really good player, it's not that the kid changes is everybody around that kid changes. Oh. I've had so many kids that not only in this country, but you know, Canada, Germany, England, where they became number one. Mm-hmm. And then they're taken away from the grassroots training, and now they're with the governing body of tennis, who has money and has wild cards. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's just crazy, crazy, crazy tennis—the wild, wacky world of tennis teaching. So, will Djokovic win a Grand Slam this year? You know, I really haven't been paying that much tennis to that much attention to uh, pro tennis. I usually do a lot of computer work and I'll have the tennis channel on, but. Uh, here, as of late, I've been spending too much time watching the news. But um, I think with Serena, for example, uh, she's obviously older now, but you know she went so many years where she wasn't playing enough matches. Mm-hmm. So you know, Djokovic, um, you know, not not being say tournament tough. Mm-hmm. The title, uh, one of our guests, uh, Carlos Goffey. Um, no, I think that he can put it together. I mean, with uh, so much experience, inner belief system, uh, but is he a little bit off? I mean, I've watched enough to go, yeah, he's a little bit off with um, Jim Larry used to always say that is you can't stop playing tennis. It's very, mm-hmm. very difficult with, you know, you think about people who've taken a layoff like Borg, mm-hmm. McEnroe. When they came back, if they were away for the, from the game, you know, for say six, nine months, um, it's pretty difficult to make a comeback. It's been done for sure. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, no, I, I, I think he can. Um, but, uh, I mean, you know, he's 120. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, with, um, you know, yeah, he's, you know, he, he certainly, yes. I mean, he would be. When I look at Alcaraz, I have the crazy thought that he could win 20-something Grand Slams. Do you think that there is a possibility? Oh, there's always a possibility. Um, man, he's a really special player. I was talking to someone, I was introduced to someone uh, the other day who's grown, who grew up with him, four years older. And just, well, that's, that's what I like is I, you know, um, you know, I was a young coach from Brazil and, but he grew up in Spain and, you know, just asked about this young player, Alcarez. And <clears throat> with uh, people knew uh, his coach, um, and he's got so many coaches, but his dad's a coach. But uh, Juan Carlos Ferrero, um, he was asked to do, I think, a prestigious job, like coach the Davis Cup team. And he said, no, I'm putting all my energy with this 12-year-old. He's the real mm-hmm. deal. Um, but, you know, the other day I was watching him play Sebastian Corda. Um, I mean, Corda is a fantastic tennis player. And, um, you know, people just keep getting better. I mean, look at Taylor Fritz. Um, you, know, he, you know, he's a player who's got a couple holes in his game and, um you know, the American players that are up there right now, um, 
you know, to win a grand slam, you know, TFO, yeah, he could win a grand slam, but you know, a lot of play on the forehand side, but how many people really attack his forehand? Can they can serve to his forehand, you know, volley to his forehand? People don't really understand. You want to play with somebody who's got some complexities on the forehand, maybe it's an extreme grip. Mm-hmm. The best thing to do is volley into that forehand. People say, well, hit him an underspin backhand because you keep the ball low. Well, you're, you know, perhaps you're hitting a float underspin backhand. You're not really penetrating with speed. But you take like a Sampras, who Sampras, you know, I think a humble champion in many ways for years. He said, yeah, I would love to play Nadal. Then he saw Nadal play in person and he went, wow. But, you know, you take that, the trajectory of an incoming volley, the way Sampras volleyed. uh, But how many people can do that? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think with uh, TFO, I mean, he wins the Orange Bowl at 15. And I think someone should have said, okay, he's a winner. No stage fright. He's a winner. And I don't know him from the man of the moon, but I mean, I was around him for two weeks uh, with my son, Connor. And, you know, I was Papa Smith and, you know, he knows everybody. And what did I, it's no stage fright. Say that over and over again. And um, yeah, I mean, he's a world-class tennis player, Mm -hmm. but you know, his backhand volley, you know, so to have, you know, like no holes in your game, like James Blake, you know, I remember him saying about Roger Federer, no holes. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, a little shaky on the forehand volley, you know, as you know, he, he would tell you, I like that story about he was, if he was given three wishes, one that a doll played soccer two he hit a backhand like Barranca and he saved the third wish smart mm-hmm. guy. So, um, no, I, I'm not really current with uh, pro tennis, but at one point, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in the LA area, a lot of time in the Miami area and had a chance to travel. And, you know, I used to be able to just, Okay, here are the top 250 players in the world, uh, men's side more so, but, you know, tell you about the, the games of those people, but no, I can't really do that now. But, you know, you could just roll some film. If you want to watch some people play, it's very easy, even someone who's playing at the challenger level, say, okay, I'm going to watch 100 points, even three different surfaces. You know, mm-hmm. that's, YouTube's pretty powerful that way. And I think that's that's all the questions I've got. I hope I was of help. You were to start off talking about you know my position in tennis, you know how I got in tennis, but um, you know I've been in it a long time, and um, I do think we need to go backwards. And with all you have to do is you know watch people play, and then in other sports, like say we're just telling those girls that you know I used to wear a whistle, so I'm not coaching as well as I used to. Mm-hmm. And I should be doing that now and um, wearing a whistle. And if you don't hit topspin on the return, you know, say someone's just trying to hit their righty and they're trying to hit an inside out backhand, you know, getting the ball away from the net person. And then the point stops, you know, you don't play the point or you're playing singles. And once the kid backs off a backhand and they're on the baseline or behind the baseline, you just blow the whistle and say, no, play again. Don't play mm-hmm. that. Don't play that point. And if you think about something like Bobby Knight and basketball, um, if someone finally got something and, you know, they would make a, make a point where everybody had to go run to their notebook and they'd have to write down where somebody on the team finally got the message. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, Bobby, all you dumb SOBs, go sit down, get your pencil and paper out. But they're showing up with a notebook. Mm-hmm. Most programs in junior tennis, there's no chalk talk. Mm-hmm. There, there is no place in the club where, okay, let's sit down, let's look at film, let's get a board. Let's talk about, you know, strategy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it just becomes another tennis lesson. And, 
I think I go talk about it over and over again, the KISS method. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people think that we're high tech. We're really not. Mm-hmm. You know, Jack Roppel, who was a guest on the podcast, biomechanics, how does it go from the top? From the bottom, bio-no-mechanics, bio-mini mechanics, bio-maxi mechanics. Mm-hmm. You know, the internet gurus are making it sound like they know bio-maxi mechanics. Mm-hmm. And I would say with how they teach the forehand, I said, well, if that's how a snake goes down a hole, uh, you know, slow motion, which, let's watch how that snake went down the hole. That's how most people are trying to hit a forehand. Mm-hmm. It's like, are you kidding me? And there's so many moving parts and they don't interrelate the ready position to the volley, the ready position to the volley, to the backswing for the forehand ground stroke. And um, it's like, no, it's not going to work. Um, and all you have to do, we did that the other day, a Vandermeer drill, is you take a target, you feed 10 balls, mm-hmm. and then you have to hit the target, but then you have the, the other kids training and say every time they hit a ball, put, it, put the ball, a ball down where it went. Mm-hmm. And you do that once and you go, you're not even close to hitting the target. Mm-hmm. And then when you do it the very next time, they're better. Because... Life gives you the test first and the lesson second is we need to test kids. We need a skill test. And then, then if you let a kid know, you know, like in basketball, okay, the kid's in a rowboat, they're in the middle of the ocean. And the coach says, that kid couldn't hit water. He's in a rowboat, middle of the ocean. The tennis court. Yeah. We can tell some people it's small. It's 19.1 degrees. But if you tilt it up on its side, it's as big as the side of a barn. Mm-hmm. Dennis Vanderman used to do a drill. I remember him taking a player that I worked with. He used to just try to blast the ball. And he wasn't the best player, but Braun versus Brain. You know, he's in the he's 17 years old. And, you know, he can beat the younger kids just because he's bigger, stronger. And Vandermeer took him on the court, put the basket in front of him to protect himself, put one of his coaches at the net post, had everybody watching, and he said, You can't beat a blind person with no racket. And he'd feed the ball to one corner, and the kid would miss. And then he'd open his eyes and ask the, the scorekeeper at the net post, what's the score? Love 15. And then he'd feed the ball. And, of course, the kid's get embarrassed because there's people watching. And, and you know, there's, there's got to be accountability. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's got to be study. Like, say, Lansdorp, you know, hit 100 balls up the middle. Hit 100 balls deep up the middle. Now his famous drill where at the end of the lesson – you got to, you know, he just feeds people side to side and the way he feeds the ball. And he used to talk to his students that were millionaires the same way. The ones that went on and like an Elliot Telcher was playing pro mm-hmm. tennis and he's ripping the ball corner to corner. Can they just move corner to corner and hit the ball over the service line? Mm-hmm. And when they miss, they got to go back to zero. And he just keeps running them and running them. And again, I don't think there's accountability, you know, can, can you hit the target? And um, you know, that's where, you know, for us, I don't think that you should teach tennis and ki- a kid comes out and you don't film mm-hmm. and you don't skill test. And then you have to let the parents know. Um, fan is short for fanatical. We tease kids and go, yeah, you got two people in your fan club, your mother and your father. And they love you. They're not trading you. It's unconditional love. You know, the, the mom may, the wife may trade the husband, the husband may trade the wife, but they're not trading the kid. And, um, and then, you know, Vic Braden, no, every day is not a golden day. Mm-hmm. And say, no, you, you've got you've to have skills. And, you know, some kid is in the driveway shooting basketballs. The target tells them, hey, that must have been a good shot. Tennis, people don't understand the target. 
Mm-hmm. You know, they think the target's low and huge because they see the target through the net. But the target in tennis is the same in basketball. It's small and it's elevated. Mm-hmm. You know, so like teaching aids, okay, here's a hula hoop. You know, you're going to put the hula hoop on the other side and say, okay, let's hit some cross-court forehands. And then, well, kids on their own, they don't. Do they come early before practice and stay late? They don't. And just get a friend and go, hey, there's an open court over there. Let's hit a half-hour cross-court forehands. And let's hit a half-hour cross-court backhands. Because they find it boring. And they go right to their cell phone, which they find exciting. And mm-hmm. um, with, uh, you know, to find a backboard. You know, I meet a kid and go, by foot, how far is a backboard from your house? By bike, mm-hmm. by car. And, you know, then, then, then do you hit that? We tell people when they come to visit, before you come back, if your parents are allowed within their neighborhood, not build out of wood because it makes too much noise, but you're better off to build a backboard behind your garage, put up a floodlight, draw a square, and just how many balls can you hit in that square? Mm-hmm. And again, you do the ordinary and extraordinary amount. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you a question or two, and we'll sign off here. Sure. Um, you've been here three weeks. Um, are you going to graduate? Are we going to we let you go down the road and go, you're awesome? Um, should I graduate? Is that your question? Should I be allowed? Well, well, you know, when it comes down to OETs, okay, you graduate. But, I mean, high school, high school graduation, they use the word commencement. For the longest time, because I went to siblings, brother, sister, brother, sister, they graduate. I thought commencement meant the end, mm-hmm. which means the beginning. Mm-hmm. Because what happens is high school kids, they start to talk about high school like it's a jail sentence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like one, one more year and I'm out. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, if you want to be a lifelong learner, but I do think that you've done a great job hanging around with us, and then, which is not fun to go back and look at the content. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you just heard me tell a player, I said, I've known you forever and you don't know the content. Mm-hmm. You're getting on an airplane to go to Europe to play tennis. You don't know the content. You know, people will say binge watching, okay, uh, Breaking Bad. Ah, it's a great show. I'm going to binge watch it. I'm on a 12-hour flight. I'm going to watch it for 12 hours. And um, so we put together Tennis Intelligence Applied with the idea that people look, look at it, especially coaches, will look at it over and over again. Well, we found out that people are really, when it comes to education, they're interested in the degree. They're interested in the diploma. Are they really interested in learning? So that's where we put the great base together is, okay, we'll put a short course together that's an hour and a half, mm-hmm. two hours max. And, you know, so we asked people, have you seen, have you looked at the course? And, um, you know, so their parents, they bring them here. You know, then I say, do you get the airplane tickets for free? Is a hotel free? Is a rent-a-car free? Oh, you go to the restaurants. It's all free. And, um, you know, we had a couple of kids here the other day, twins, uh, 14-year-olds from um, Charlotte. And, you know, I'm in the parking lot, and I said, all right, guys, you don't have any school. You're on spring break. Go back to the hotel. Go to the hotel gym. Do the shadow swing routine in front of a mirror. And then spend some time studying content. Mm-hmm. And the dad goes, oh, they must be tired. And I said, your kids won't make it. I'm old enough now. I talk to the parents. I mean, I talk to them like they're students. Mm-hmm. I, go, I go, you're going you're gonna to talk to your son that way or your sons? Um, and, you know, no. So, you know, people need to have uh, some crazy love. Like, okay, we just trained, you know, six hours today with video work. It wasn't six hours on the court. 
uh, the people who are on a longer period, they didn't train six hours, but you know, maybe they were six and a half hours. And then it's like, no, okay, your day is done. Well, you know, home, go home, get some energy, take a shower, you're getting something to eat, and then and then go to work. Um, but for yourself, uh, what did you learn more from the videos or being here? Um, being here because I have to, the videos give me the fundamental base of what we're doing, but then through working, um, particularly cause I worked most with Roberto on the technical development of certain players cause you were running everything, just seeing him identify what's going on because I don't have an, I don't really have an eye for it. So then seeing him say, if I miss something, it's like someone's not keeping their head down at impact point when we're doing shadow swings. And I miss that. Then he points that out. Then seeing how he's going to explain that. But then when I watch the videos, I just hear, oh, you need to keep your head down at impact point. During the shadow swing, being able to see how he ident- what he identifies that I miss and then how he explains it and then solves the problem. And that was... Um, that was the most beneficial process for me to learn. I think back to the question of if I've graduated from this program, I don't think I've graduated from this program because I think I can only graduate from the program when I know it like the back of my hand. I have to have immediate recall of it. And I also have to be, not only do I have to have immediate recall of the information, but I also have to be able to look at a situation and say, and look at someone's forehand and say, these are the five problems with their forehand right now. And these are the drills that we do to change it. And I have to be able to recognize it. I recognize a problem, know what the drills are straight away and just be able to explain it automatically without even thinking about how I'm going to construct the, the message to the student and only until I've gotten to that point. And basically when I've gotten to that point, that's probably when I've developed X amount of players um, down their developmental pathway. However, we would quantify that. So only until that point, but then it's an endless, it's an endless learning process. So no, I don't think I'm anywhere close to that, but I think I'm, I've started finally becoming a tennis coach because in a way I don't really know what I've been doing. I've just been really encouraging students to get better. Um, and I think students have been getting better, but a, a very, a, a fraction of what they could be if I was just giving them the right information. But I was largely ignorant that I wasn't giving them the right information. And then I would go and look at different inform I'd look at different sources online and the sources I looked at. Now I can see that they're they're just providing me the wrong information. So it was the blind leading the blind. Now you speak well it well one. Um Dennis Vandermeer, one time I was in Atlanta in a um tornado touchdown. Everybody in tennis, I mean, there was no tennis to be taught. He was teaching a, a clinic, and I was teaching a clinic, and the only reason we ran into each other is everybody in tennis went to the tennis club of the South that was really damaged by the tornado touching down, you know, and just picking up branches and this and that. And So it was really interesting. I, was, I hadn't been around Dennis in a while, and 
you know, we're just walking around, picking up debris, talking. And he says, Stephen, you were right. It's not certification. It's education. Because he had a 10-day program, Tennis University. And then, you know, he never lowered the price. But at one point, then it was down to five days. And I used to tell people, you need to watch Dennis Vandermeer work. Jim Lair said that. Like, wow, that guy was a master. That guy was fantastic. Presenter, group dynamics, da-da-da-da-da. But... You know, people who study the content we put together, that doesn't mean that you're a scientist. That doesn't mean that you're an artist, but you're becoming a craftsman. You're learning your craft. Mm-hmm. And so you, you have to put time in. Back to analyzing a parent coach was uh, observing us the other day, and I'm yelling to one brother, I go, you do the same thing as your brother. Every time you're making a diagonal step and your hips are locked. And so the, the gentleman visiting goes, how do you see that? And I go, well, you got to be an outlier. Now, Malcolm Gladwell, a Canadian, a great writer, you know, he made that word famous because of the title of his book, Outliers. Mm-hmm. But if you look at video over and over and over again, you're going to develop your analytical guide. But before you do that, you have to have a base. Mm-hmm. Again, the FedEx logo, there's an arrow in the middle of it. And at Coach's Workshops, we pass that out and go, oh, you see the arrow. And some people don't. You say, okay, take your pen and fill in the arrow. And then we tell people, once you see it, you always see it. And... That's where, you know, um, you know, the players that we just, we went through a stroke analysis. I mean, I did three today for, for accomplished players, video analysis on strokes. And we did one on match play. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on the one-handed backhand, and it's fun. I love to watch the one-handed backhand. But a player's got a, um, they don't have a rising socket. They got a rotating socket. Their, mm-hmm. their arm's going like a door. It's going like 180 degrees. It's not going like the hood of a car. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, you need to change it. I mean, it ain't going to work mm-hmm. um, to the to the level. So to, to analyze that, um, when I think back when I first started playing tennis, um, you know, what did I see? Nothing. I, I remember being so amazed with Vic Braden. And he'd, he'd say, well, the player's going to hit the ball in the net. i go, how's he now? And so say, for example, he changed someone's grip on a backhand. It doesn't matter, one-handed or two-handed. But I, when I first met Braden, it was more one, one-handed backhands than two-handed backhands. But um, so what happens is that you change the grip. So now they have a new grip, but they have the old wrist position. Because if they had an inefficient grip, uh. they had to change the wrist. So he, he knew beforehand that the ball was going down. I thought it was like a magic act. Yeah, I just didn't know. So someone has a forehand grip on their serve, and they swing straight ahead. Now you give them a continental grip, they're right-handed. The ball goes way to the left. If you really study Braden information... It's so relevant to this day. Mm-hmm. If you really study it, you actually learn more away from Vic Braden than you do when you're with him side by side. Mm-hmm. It's because you need to take the information and, and apply it, it, and then work it, and then be out there in the trenches. Mm-hmm. You know, on, on our podcast, we want to continue to interview trench pros, people, mm-hmm. people who've been in the trenches and are truly trying to teach tennis, trying to help people out. But I hope people found value uh, to have you here inter- asking questions. It was great to have you here. You got big time people skills. You're fun. You're a guy that we would say is you're good in the locker room. Mm-hmm. You know, the Bear Bryant thing, when Bear Bryant said, uh, and he got his name because he did at a carnival wrestle, the famous football coach, University mm-hmm. of Alabama. He wrestled a grizzly bear. Of course, the grizzly bear, they had cut off the claws and he was wearing a muzzle. But he told his coaching staff one time, is that this isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. I'm the grizzly bear and all you guys are teddy bears. Mm-hmm. We're going to switch it around. 
and you're going to all be grizzly bears and I'm going to be a teddy bear. So you, for yourself with your sense of humor is you have to learn, especially when you're going to be around tournament players and older players, that there's a time to be funny and there's not a time mm-hmm. to fight funny. And then as the, as the coach, and you've used the term coach quite often, is that for us, teaching is information transfer. Coaching is a human relationship. A coach brings out a story of a player. I love this definition. A coach brings a story out of a player that they wouldn't bring out themselves. Mm-hmm. But you have to set the tone. Mm-hmm. You, know, you have to say, okay, we're laughing right now. But no, no, right now we're not laughing. Mm-hmm. And you can even just tell people, no, no, we're not laughing right now. Hug yeah, your racket, yeah, yeah. eyes straight ahead. Yeah. And then it's like, okay. Um, you know, it's very important for people to be able to, to laugh at themselves. Thomas Jefferson, integrity and humor. That's one, mm-hmm. and, one and two. So um, I think it's great you have a sense of humor. And I think it's great that you're so interested in, in having integrity. Um, I mean, I, for me, and I'll end by saying this, how could you look a kid in the eye? I mean, but a lot of times level two ignorance, they don't know, they don't know. But if you, if you've been introduced to some information, go, this makes sense. I, I need to, I need to get a hold of Braden's book, Tennis 2000. It's not, uh, obsolete, you know, physics is not a fad. And what Gideon Ariel was talking to us about with, you know, where are you generating forces? And that, had, you know, going back to that was so refreshing with Gideon Ariel. Braden used to say things like, you got to feel your body segments when you hit your forehand. You set anchor on that front foot. Of course, when I say that, that's a Welby Van Horn term, set, mm-hmm. an- set anchor. Braden used to say stabilize and then feel your body segments off that front foot. And you got to be lifting. Mm-hmm. It's a, Braden, it's a lifting game. Obviously, he was saying that long before Gideon influenced his tennis. But, you know, can you look a kid in the eye? And I have to thank my father for that is, um, you know, the, my father was somebody who could work with the neophytes, work with the beginners. Mm-hmm. My brother wrote a book the first time he wrote it. I gave him a hard time because he didn't dedicate to anyone. And he, I mean, I think he wrote 10 books in total, but he dedicated one to my father. It's emotional. He said, my father understood the true meaning of sport, participation. Mm-hmm. And kids are leaving the game because they're mistaught. And, you know, you know, when there's most programs, they don't have an orientation. Kids are hired because they got personality. They can hit the ball a little bit. You go to everyday tennis club USA and the little kids are the ones that have to have the best teachers. And that's not what happens. They have somebody play little high school tennis and, you know, they have people skills and then, I mean, that's, everyday tennis and it's like Braden there's no substitute for a good beginning and you know when you meet someone and now there's been so much research done with the brain and like hey kid you got so much bad myelin mm-hmm. the athlete's a biocomputer now we got a deprogram reprogram and it's just not fun but information is one thing applied information is another and you know someone's got too big a swing on the forehand well, do you have 20 corrective measures on how to fix that? And if you do, you're looking for 21. Mm-hmm. And if you're out there in the trenches, you're going to figure out 21. Mm-hmm. And, but, um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a fantastic opportunity to be a teacher and have the opportunity. Of course, our lane is so much working with juniors, but it's the same thing for adults. Mm-hmm. Entry-level adults, Braden, they can quote that guy all day long. Beginning tennis players buy tennis clothes and then they wear them to the grocery store. And because tennis is a very difficult game. That's one of the reasons pickleball is growing. 
It's just instant fun. Mm -hmm. Well, fair enough. Okay. I mentioned that earlier. Can't beat them, join them. Okay. Let's get tennis kids. Let's get tennis people playing pickleball Mm -hmm. and go, Hey, you're going to be great, but they're not, people are not going to be that good at pickleball because we're not teaching people to volley. We're not teaching people to volley. It used to be a finished player was a person who could finish at the net. So that's how you can make the connection between tennis and pickleball. Yeah, no, it has to happen. And we're, we're losing tennis courts, mm-hmm. but it's activity. There's money tournaments now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have kids weekend after weekend going to Battle of Boca. I understand Ryder DeHart, uh, who spent years with us. He's a great competitor. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, he's somebody who wasn't, a, even with he was with a year after year, but he lived at home, which mm-hmm. is normal. He was a day student. And, you know, we had the students who were around us living with us. That's a whole different experience. Because, you know, you're having, you're going to lunch and you're talking to a kid here, you're talking to a kid mm-hmm. there. Um, and, but he's got the competitive juice. So, you know, I've been told that he's playing pickleball and he's winning money and he's good at it. Of course he's good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, but with... Um, no, I think it's it's here to stay. Mm-hmm. You know, will it ever be bigger than the U.S. Open? Um, it's growing at a faster rate. I hope than, not than tennis. But we in tennis have to work together, mm-hmm. and we don't. We have to work harder, and we don't. What what happens is one coach is saying, "I'm better than that coach," and you know, there's no great coach or no no greatest coach. When I was dumb, and Andy Brandy was dumb, you know, I was two years younger, winner our twenties. And I was going, Vic Braden's the best. And he was saying, Welby Van Horn's the best. Well, the great thing about that is through his, you know, Joe Brandy, Andy Brandy, I ended up getting to go work for Welby. Mm-hmm. And um, so obviously great, great, great. But um, no, so with, uh, can you look a kid in the eye? And, you know, just say, you know, it's like Nick Baltieri has all these great lines. Some kid cheats you. Say, hey, are you going to be able to sleep tonight? Mm-hmm. Instead of, you know, Arthur Ashe said, don't lose your cool because then they cheated you out of your emotions. Just, you mm-hmm. know, after two times, three times, whatever the max is, you go get an umpire and you keep your cool. Of course, you're going to be cheated. It's part of tennis. But with, um, do tennis teachers think, I'm cheating this kid? Okay. You, Dennis Vandermeer, you can replace money, but you can't replace time. And if there's a kid right in front of you, and they, they tell you they want to play tournament tennis and their parents are committed to helping them out and the kid's got a palm-up serve or Bud Collins, they got the Hawaiian grip. You know, I mean, it's not just they have this extreme grip. I mean, the rack, the butt of the racket's almost hitting their earlobe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they get the ball back and they're, they're winning some matches and it's like, oh, I think they're pretty good. And it's like, whoa. But we need to work together in tennis. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's where there should be standards. That's where there should be standards. Dennis, I think, you know, at one point with the PTR, are they there now, the Professional Tennis Registry? Of uh, the USPTA, I think years back, it used to be, I remember Doug McCurdy, who was uh, in charge of, uh, well, he had a, some leadership roles with the ITF. It was one, one time in charge of player development with the USTA. I remember him, he used, to, he used to say, it's great at Saddlebrook, this famous place in Tampa, which I know quite well, that every coach is different. Well, every coach is different. My father used to say, wouldn't it be boring if everybody was the same? We have that list of the 20 different types of pros, which we made a podcast out of. But with, uh, you know, people are going to have style. You know, my style, Roberto's style are different. You know, he's the mm-hmm. bad cop and I'm the good cop, right? Of course. And, you know, I did a lot of things with Andy Fitzell. He was the bad cop and I was the good cop. 
Um, so you need the yin and the yang. You want to have every personality on a staff, but people have to be speaking the same language. Mm-hmm. There should be continuity from going from one court to the next. You know, and the consumer goes, well, and I've done that. Kim Wittenberg said, yeah, I've been fired by 112-year-olds. I don't think he's probably been fired by that many, but I've been fired by quite a few myself where well, I don't like that mom. And what do people do? They go on a national search for looking for another coach? No, they go a few miles down the road and what do they find? They find someone who tells the kid what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. And they, they find someone who's going to let the kid just play, play, play. Because it's all about money. Yeah, and if, you know, you, you, again, I'm repeating myself, but you, know, you, kid the, you keep the kid happy. Mm-hmm. But so what we do is we market through the parent. You know, I got mm-hmm. an email from someone in Australia today. Say, hey, can you talk about, um, people say, well, if you teach tennis that way, the kids won't have any fun. Um, you know, there's a book that in my, in my library, How to Talk to a Kid. Hey, you want to be a champ or a chump? Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, you know, okay, what should we really, you, you said that you want to be a pro. You said you want to play, you know, kids right down. I want to play at Stanford. I want to play D1, D1, D1. Mm-hmm. And, but you say, well, you put down, you want to play Division One tennis. And this is what it's going to take. Um, and start to train, and, and that's what we're not doing in the U.S. like it's done in other countries. We're going to train that kid as a young athlete. Mm-hmm. We're not going to train him as a client. Mm-hmm. We're not going to train him as a member. It's and having the appropriate lens. Say that again? It's having the appropriate lens to look at yeah, the person. But again, uh, Peter Burwash, and I know we have people that said they listen to every podcast. Okay, the, um, the pro's personality. The personality needs to make it work. Mm-hmm. You know, the game-based teaching, you can have kids drop hit balls in the alley um, and make it a contest. Move up, move down. Mm-hmm. You can, we did this the other day, the spider drill, and you'd have kids on one side of the court, kids on the other side of the court, they do the spider drill, and whoever wins, they move up. Mm-hmm. Loser moves down. So you, you need, Vandermeer is great at that. You, you need to con the little buggers. You need to make it fun. Um, you know, I'm in a park, or actually it's a private school, and there's a swing set and a zip line, and, and there's some young kids there. And I said, okay, we do this for 50 minutes. You can go over there for 10 minutes. Yeah, you know, behavior and, reward. And, you know, I tell parents all the, whole, all, all the time is that um, I'll shut up. You don't, you don't do this. I was teaching at a club one time, and sugar's a drug, and you're, okay, well, we're not going to give them sugar. But you just show up with all these little packs of Tic Tacs. Mm-hmm. So the kid hits the cherry off the ice cream cone, the forehand, backhand, uh, say the forehand. They shake hands with the giant. They freeze. They tap their back toe for the 3-H system balance. Mm-hmm. And the kid does it one time, and the mother gives them all the whole, all 40 Tic Tacs. And I go, no, 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 mom. What you're going to do is give them, they got to do 10, and they earn one. Mm-hmm. But then you don't give it to them until afterwards. But then they can lose that, too. You just explain the rules of the game. So, you know, if you do 10 in a row, mm-hmm. you get one tic-tac. But now, now you got to do 10 more if you want two tic-tacs. But if you don't do 10 in a row, you lose the first one. Mm-hmm. And so you're out there and you, it's, it's like Sandlot Sports is that you create, some people that are playing Sandlot Sports, they create the rules so they can win. Mm-hmm. Again, Vandermeer would do that. Okay, we're going to figure it out. You know, we, do, we used to have a form tournament and give out prizes. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd have judges and, and just in one day, we used to film this at Tyler Junior College Camp. But we had a staff where we trained people for nine, nine months. Mm-hmm. We had a gym that these dancing girls had that performed at the White House twice. All these mirrors. And, okay, we're going to go in and we're going to learn the body balance system mm-hmm. from Welby Van Horn. We're going to learn the grips. We're going to learn the shape of the swings. We're going to do all these, again, applied information. Yeah. 
And that's where, yeah, people look at our, uh, we have to do a better job. We were, we're making some changes where we hope to do that, giving out more free content, trying to help out the person who really wants to learn to teach and play better. But, um, you know, I think what happens with a lot of young coaches like yourself is you can see in the kid's eyes, they're getting bored. Mm-hmm. So then the teacher cops out. To get, and I can and, just and give they, them what they want, which is, say, which is jailbreak. Yeah, let's let's make it fun. Around the world, you know, people are putting two people on this side, six people on this side, all these empty courts, you know, and it could be called tennis Olympics, this and mm-hmm. that. Um, you could do the drill. It's a really good drill if you have great strokes. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about Brookhaven where Anderson runs a program and they, they call it a, a three-zone doubles and you have to win off the approach shot. Mm-hmm. And then you tag up, you get to win off the volley, you win that, then you get to win off the over, then everybody runs to the other side. There's college teams that warm up that way because kids get all pumped up and they're having some fun doing Mm -hmm. the drill. And you want to have fun. But at the end of the practice, really who you're marketing to is the parents should show up. And then if the kids are complaining about practice, Vic Edwards, Yvonne Gulagon, great champion, Wimbledon champion. Uh, She won as a mom. She won twice. And and, uh, she said, I didn't like what Vic Edwards would do where – they would shadow swing in the beginning of practice. And, you know, granted, you look back at Mr. Hopman, he used to do that. And, and granted that, okay, there was some misinformation, but they were still thinking ready position, unit turn, there was a backswing, there was contact, there was follow through. That's all gone away. Mm-hmm. People don't even teach that anymore. You know, you just hit some balls. You know, you watch people, they don't even have a ready position. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you saw some films being made last night. So um, anyway, um, yeah, to be able to look a kid in the eye. I mean, going back and there's all these, it's all out there. Be brilliant with basics. Mm-hmm. Well, basics isn't exciting. Yeah. Well, winning's exciting. Mm-hmm. And Bobby Knight, all the vine, mind vitamins. It's not the will to win, it's the will to prepare. Mm-hmm. You know, with B, Stephen Covey, the late Stephen Covey, begin with the end in mind. So you have to talk to a kid. Say, well, you know, that is the beginner serve. Mm-hmm. You can play with that grip, but that's, and we don't look with recreational tennis. We teach tennis. Everyone, everyone's mm-hmm. taught the same when it comes to information. It's not like, well, this is recreational tennis and it's, you know, the, the tennis coaches can't play God, but well, they're not serious. That's not high performance. I mean, it's really crazy. What's called high performance. Mm-hmm. And really what's high performance is a kid who already has a shoulder bag and they just hit a bunch of balls. Mm-hmm. And, um, but anyway, it's been fun to have you here. I hope the listeners got um, something out of this. It's certainly been a review, I think, because there's a lot of I've made a lot of repetitive comments. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I'm certainly no Vic Braden. But when I worked for Braden, anytime he lectured, I sat in the back of the room mm-hmm. because you got to hang in there, and you need you need repetition, but you need reinforcement. Mm-hmm. And the more you can hear the same message then you get a higher level of understanding. Mm-hmm. And so you, it's great. You've gone through, like, say, Tennis Intelligence Applied. You know, I think we have 200 questions at the end of it or 250 questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, for you're not going to go to a conference and listen to someone speak for an hour. Um, you're not going to, it's worse yet, you're not going to look at a YouTube clip and go, this is how you hit the forehand. I mean, it's just, that's just not going to work. You need to go. And what you've done is you've watched this work for three weeks. Mm-hmm. And 
Um, and then also, too, when you watch the kids play. Now, what we should do with uh, a couple of the people that are here, mm-hmm. um, actually, we did that last night for a few minutes. We have a player here from Japan, been here for six weeks, and we went back and looked at his film. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, okay, reset on the backhand, racket face open, outside in, horizontal pull on the backhand, and that's one of the reasons he's missing wide. Mm-hmm. And it's like, let's go back. And, um, you know, so, for, so from day one, we said, no, you want to have the racket up high, let the racket go low. When the racket face is closed, then and only then can you swing inside out. Mm-hmm. So then coming back to studying content, can you say that? It's not like we're trying to be dogmatic, but, you know, you know that's how I used to train people. Write that down. Mm-hmm. When the racket face is closed, then and only then you can swing inside out. Mm-hmm. If the racket face is open, you cannot use gravity. If the racket face is open, you have to recruit muscles. But, you, you know, to hear it is to forget it, to write it down and go, okay, Volatieri used to do this with uh, people like Jimmy Arias. Um, Arias is good friends with him and, and teases him about, hey, you didn't teach me a backhand grip. But um, he would, old school, Volatieri would make people go to a blackboard or even take a pad of paper, like old school. Write, they don't do this anymore in school. It's, it's called abusive. Write this down 10 times. The Bart Simpson routine. I don't know Bart Simpson. You know the opening of The Simpsons where they show Bart writing on the chalkboard because he's in detention that he won't do a behavior again? I, well. was, I was told by John Doran, who went to Harvard twice, MBA guy, and uh, I told, he, told, he told me that The Simpsons has, you know, it, it's, two, it's two targets. They're actually making adults laugh and they're making children laugh at the mm-hmm. same time. But uh, I have never seen one episode of The Simpsons. I uh, am not a Renaissance person. I'm pretty one-dimensional. But I got to check out The Simpsons. It's okay. There's more to life than TV. I've been told I need to go back and watch Star Wars. I miss Star Wars. But anyway, Will Resnick, the Canadian intern. (laughs) Great to have you in the house. Um, Did a very good job not saying anything uh, crazy about the Canadians. We can't say that now because John McEnroe, I can't believe the Canadians are producing better tennis players than us. I can understand where they produce better hockey players. But I used to say, um, what do the Canadians use snowshoes for? And that's what they use for a tennis racket. The snowshoes, once the big Prince rackets came out. And they used to call it Canadian doubles where you'd have three people play doubles. And I used to tease while they're Oh, they, I didn't know that. They call it Canadian doubles because there's only three players in Canada. But now we have to be humble because, uh, and Canadians are doing it not through methodology, not through systematic coaching. No. They're developing players because they have hungry immigrants. Oh. That's, that's what they're doing. I've spent a lot of time. I've lived in Canada. I grew up right next to Canada, but that was back in my hockey days. But I've lived in Canada, worked with a lot of Canadian coaches on a regular basis, just here in the last uh, three months, I mean, I maybe had 30 Canadians here visiting, mm-hmm. um, players and, and coaches. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, you have some exciting young tennis players. But thanks for being here. Thanks for this. Podcast number 90, we're heading towards 100. And I'd like to thank everyone for listening, especially those people who told me they've listened to everyone. <laughs> All right, Will, baby. We'll check it out. Adios, amigos. Thanks for listening, everybody. Will, the new handshake. All right. Thanks, Coach. You're more than welcome. Thanks. Thank you, listeners. Thank you.